Emergency Medicine Abstract with Sanjay and Mike. Hello, November. And welcome back, EMA World. We're in the heat of fall <laughs> oh my at this point. God, is it hot. Yeah. I, just, I guess <laughs> I'm taking what's happening right now and then adding the word fall because right now, this is like the hottest time in the history of mankind. I'm going to say that it's the hottest that it's ever been on planet Earth, including like down to its molten core. And what's better is apparently in about two or three hours, there's going to be a hurricane in California. <laughs> yeah, well, I believe it's officially been downgraded to a tropical storm, but it is really strange to see in the news that tropical storm is hitting... Yeah. Southern California. It like, does it have a, it must have a name. It I does. feel like it should have like a no, Latino I just, I, name. I had too, just I had just read it. Cool, it was like you know? Kate or something. Kate. I, I I forgot what you know, they they just named them in alphabetical order, I think, right? Isn't that how well, it works? Well, yeah, but, it's like A B C but yeah. you, they, within that A there's, there's some flexibility. Alex or Alejandro. But it's you know not even saying? just that it's been hot. It's like so muggy. It's, so it's like awful. it's just it's terrible yeah. you know i literally have had my windows and doors shut for like a week and the ac is on and every time i open them i'm like oh god and then you yeah but then you get you know i don't know if you get them or if heather's the one at your house set up to sort of receive the things but amanda gets them all the time it's like an email or text from the power company yeah. going quit it guys <laughs> turn it off turn the ac off it's yeah. like they're the flex alert yeah <laughs> which is like we're flexing our muscle and if you don't turn off your AC, we're going to come and cut your electricity. <laughs> yeah. Which is terrifying to think of like the power just going out at our house. Think of, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bad. I know that a lot of the country is dealing with extreme heat. And, you know, we joke about when it's cold in Los Angeles, how yeah. it's the coldest place in the earth and all that. We are soft. I get it. Yeah. I'm we're comfortable. Weak. I'm weak. comfortable between 72 and 76 degrees. And anything beyond that, I'm like lost. And it's like, you can see it in the streets when you walk around, right? Like people are dressed weird now. Like they don't know what to do. And they're like, some of them like are walking around with like bikini tops and stuff. But then other ones are like wearing their winter coat. They're like, I don't know what's happening. Temperature's weird. Put on the winter coat. Yeah. What's the thing that's, re I don't know, you know, it, as people who are listening to the show, been listening for a while, know Mike and I have been friends forever for, you know, 20 some odd plus years. And we each have a set of superpowers. We, we do that. That's true. You know, and I don't know if we've ever actually gone over Some them of them on the are show. not fit for public consumption. Yeah. But they're, they're very specific. Our superpowers have been fine-tuned over the years. But one of Mike's superpowers is that I know. the it's weather- It's going to sound a little bit- It's going to sound odd. strange. <laughs> but the weather is always, it clears, it's perfect, it's like 75 and sunny. When he needs it to be for something That's specific. Right. Essentially, I, I control the weather. I yeah. know it sounds a little <laughs> egotistical and crazy, but it just is true. Because even, you know, it initially, so Mike and I kind of have a big weekend planned for ourselves. We have, uh, we're going to see Duran Duran tomorrow night at the Hollywood Bowl. So we don't, we don't just walk the walk when it comes to like <laughs> 80s, the 80s. And, we talk the talk. Yeah. Wait, so we're no, going I to see Duran Duran. I think we don't just talk the talk, and now we're walking the walk. We got to walk to the bowl. I we're know gonna, that. We're going to talk the walk. We're going to walk and talk. We're going to walk the talk. And chew gum. Oh, boy. It's possible. I don't know. But so we're going, we're going to the show, and initially this hurricane, like tropical storm, was supposed to hit Saturday night. That's right. And I got- And it's real. It's like 80 mile an hour winds, 
four inches of rain. Yeah, and we got stuff. we got you know like a I got an email. I bought the tickets from the Hollywood Bowl, saying, "Hey, you know the show's going on, rain or shine, no umbrellas. <laughs> that's that's the rule there." And you know, so I think for a second, Amanda and Heather probably had like a moment of panic, but I was like. Easy, steady, everybody. Trust the process. (laughs) This is, it's been a lifetime in the making. And now I'm sorry for anybody who is going to the show Friday night, but the storm has moved to Friday night. Tomorrow night should be all the smog gone, should be nice and clear. Have you seen the the hourly forecast? It's not just like, oh, it moved up. It's literally like the show starts at 8 and it's like projected to clear up and dry out at 5 p.m. But not only that, you know, it has been so brutally hot in Southern California. You know, we went out to dinner and sat outside with the kids a couple of nights ago and I literally almost died. I felt like I was going to die of a heat stroke. High tomorrow, 80. I know. Which it's I'm, amazing. Which I'm still a little bit like I said 76. I'm not, I don't think you're done. I think you've got 24 more hours. I All think right. you're going to get there. I'll keep working on it. And, uh, you know, this just lends itself very nicely, I think, to a little more homework for everybody here. Go see an 80s band live in concert. Is that? It's a bit of a big ass, so we're going to give you two months to do it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Mike and I were just sort of talking. Was, we're excited about the show tomorrow. And, uh, you know, Duran Duran has had a career that spanned many decades, actually, sure. although they're the still making music it, now. I think yes. that's what they're part of this is a new tour album. Is a, yeah, it's a new uh, album. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking about because I have very fond memories of like listening to Duran Duran as a kid and stuff. Do you remember when they made that View to a Kill video yeah, on MTV? Yeah, yeah, for the James Bond. Uh, for the James Bond yeah, movie, yeah, right? And right at the yeah. end, you know, he goes like, Bond. Simon, Simon. LeBond. <laughs> it's just such a cool, you know. So cheesy and cool. That's the, the 80s. That is the 80s, 80s in it, a nutshell it right there. It. So we're looking forward to the show. If anybody else has seen some awesome 80s bands out there recently, let us know. We're always interested to hear. I know there's a bunch on oh, tour. Yeah. In the summertime, they, always, they all they kind of hit. 80s tour thing. Yeah, it was like, always the, like English like, Beat and yeah, stuff Gin like Blossoms and like Sugar Ray. <laughs> Like, Sugar I guess that's more like of a that's 90s. 90s. That's 90s. I'm actually thinking, the tour I'm thinking of is like a 90s kind of a, a tour. Yeah, no, there's always this like OMD and stuff like yeah. that does a tour every year, I feel like. And, well, the know. show that I'm still considering going to, our friend Dave is going to, is the uh, Pet Shop Boys New Order show uh-huh. in uh, next month. That's which a different is kind of 80s. Totally different. But still 80s. Equally amazing. Oh, yeah. You know, I think I am a, a, prefer Pet Shop Boys a little more to New Order, but... Uh, I do too. It's, it's but, razor thin, Mars. It's, it's close. You throw in some erasure in there, you got yourself oh, a stick. Oh, man. A little Ola Moore. <laughs> I'm listening. Anyway. Wait, wait we're, I know we're, this is a long intro, and that's okay, but I do want to make one other point. Last night was the beginning of the NFL season, so now we're knee-deep in- uh, Oh, so you're going to predict a- I, 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 After watching the opening game of the Rams losing like about a 600 to 10 to the Buffalo Bills at home at SoFi Stadium, I feel it ultimately necessary to predict- that the Rams must totally suck, right? Because my prediction- This is what worked last year. This is what worked last year. Obviously, the Rams suck. So by November, you know, tickets will be free or something like that. It'll be no problem. And there's no possible way that I'm trying to reverse jinx this so they don't suck this year. You know, maybe you should say the same thing about the Bruins because our UCLA Bruins, our beloved UCLA Bruins, they did win their first game pretty comfortably. But they sucked. And maybe they'll lose, maybe reverse jinx them. 
so we can get to a little playoff situation? That's, 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 that's I can't. I can't. <laughs> he just the Rams can't, can't say anything negative about the Bruins. The, that's the see, Rams. That's, that's I, why I love I'm a fair weather fan. <laughs> that's why I love this guy, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I just can't do it. So uh, speaking of loving, I'm loving the month. All right, the month of the papers. I think we got a lot of good stuff this month. I've got, got twenty. Uh, I've got twenty papers. I've got a randomized control trial of uh, a buckle fracture management. Randomized trial is a pretty buckle cool. like that's like the stuff that holds your belt in place. That's no the stuff on a little little kiddo's oh, arms. Oh, that kind of buckle fracture makes yeah. sense. Makes I've got sense. a meta analysis on vertigo. Going to be talking about uh, a couple of pediatric papers, vital sign abnormalities. What do you got? Well, I have I start off with something really interesting. This four peps study, which I'll I'll go into and and like how we even came to select it a little bit later. But that's a really interesting thing about PE probabilities, etc. Got a couple on ophthalmology, not something we talk about too often. So yeah, a lot of good stuff. A mix of RCTs, meta analysis, really bad chart reviews. I got I got it all. Wow. It's a veritable smorgasbord. Sounds like a cornucopia. <laughs> no, it's a smorgasbord. Well, I'm just saying in the spirit of since it is November. Friendsgiving, Thanksgiving, Cornucopia. Wherever they have smorgasbords, that's also in November. Happy Friendsgiving, everybody. And then after we do our 20, we have Jess and Jenny stepping in to ultra summarize everything. That's right. And then we have a little triple T-A-L-N with Ken and Ryan Radecki, who are going to talk about machine learning. I am the machine. (laughs) That's right. Which also known as your future boss and stuff like that. The person eagerly or the entity eagerly trying to take over your job. I think that's what it's all about, but I'm curious to hear it. All right. And then uh, I'm ready. Are you ready for the November episode? Let's do this thing. Let's do it. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Immobilization of torus fractures of the wrist. Force. A randomized controlled equivalence trial in the UK. This is by Perry et al. from Lancet. So, when adults, us grown-ups, break a bone, it's usually broken, right? There's not like kind of gray area there. I'm 100% sure about that because every sure. single patient I've ever asked when you say, your bone is broken, they're like, yes, but is it is fractured? Is it fractured? I got that. <laughs> it's but, not fractured, is it, but is it a hairline fracture or is it like some kind of other line fracture? In kids, it is possible for a bone to be more bent or crushed than actually broken which results in a green stick fracture or a buccal torus fracture, respectively. Now, although buccal fractures are the most common fracture seen in kids, there is a lot of practice variation among clinicians, sort of between clinicians and maybe even like internally. Like sometimes you decide to put on a splint, sometimes you not, sometimes you cast. And there's also variation in national and international guidelines for management, ranging from the actual management, what do you do, do you splint it, and follow-up. But who should they follow up with? When do they need follow-up at all? A Cochrane review on the topic from 2018 identified 10 trials, including just under 700 kids, which concluded that recovery was the same regardless of treatment provided, but the overall quality of the evidence was quite low. So it remains an open question. And moving away from our desire, our sort of innate cultural desire to immobilize things that are broken, has been a very slow cultural change. Practice patterns, when they have looked at this, basically are exactly the same as they were a few decades ago, despite some evidence saying, maybe we don't need to be so aggressive. Interestingly, the authors of this trial, and I find this part kind of fascinating, wanted to compare rigid immobilization for a torus or buccal fracture with no treatment 
but they did pre-trial focus groups with parents. And basically, the parents said that no treatment would not be acceptable to them as an option. So if that was going to be one of the options given in the RCT, they wouldn't let their kid enroll. It's because they call it fracture. If you said... It's exactly if right. If you said, oh, he's got a boo-boo, this is a grade two boo-boo, and then they'd say, oh, he's... But it's just kind of thing. interesting to sort of, of take course, that, yeah. and it's great that they did it. Yeah. They sort of took that parent perspective before they started the trial. And the trial here is the Forearm Fracture Recovery in Children Evaluation, the FORCE trial, which was a multi-center randomized controlled equivalence trial conducted in 23 EDs throughout the UK. They randomized kids aged 4 to 15 years with a radiologically confirmed acute torus fracture of the distal radius. They excluded patients with additional risk fractures with green stick fractures, and they randomized them to either a bandage, which was basically just like a gauze roll, and they didn't even necessarily always put it on. They just said, here, we're going to give you a gauze roll. We can put it on for you if you'd like, or rigid immobilization via either a rigid splint or a plaster cast at the discretion of the treating physician. Almost all of them at the end of the day were treated with a removable wrist splint. That was their immobilization. The primary outcome was pain at three days, and secondary outcomes included pain at other time points, functional recovery, quality of life, analgesia use, missed school days, complications, and satisfaction. This was an equivalence trial and assessed equivalence in two different age groups, the 4 to 7 age group and the 8 to older age group. They randomized just under 1,000 patients, 61% boys. The average age was about 9 years. Their average pain scores at three days, their primary outcome, were 3.21 points in the bandage group and 3.14 points in the rigid immobilization group using a modified intent-to-treat analysis. It is worth noting that 11% of the patients in the bandage group crossed over to the rigid immobilization group. Pain scores were equivalent in both the intent-to-treat and per-protocol analyses at all assessed time points, including at one day, one week, three weeks, and six weeks, and were equivalent across the dichotomized age groups, the younger kids and the older kids. There were no differences in functional recovery, health-related quality of life at six weeks, complications, which were incredibly rare in the cohort as a whole, less than 1%, and none of them had a worsen of of their deformity in either group, or missed days of school, an average of 1.5 days. Analgesia use was slightly higher in the bandage group on day one only. 83% of the kids had analgesia in the bandage group versus 78%, very small difference in the rigid splint group, but they were not different at any other time point, just that one day. Parental satisfaction was essentially similar and overall very high in both groups. So this is a well-designed, well-conducted, and well-analyzed study showing, in my mind, true equivalence between the evaluated treatment options for torus fractures in kids. Yeah, but if this becomes the norm, what about signing casts? How are you going to do that? That's like what you do when you're, you know, in second and third grade with all these people that have have these little tiny fractures. What do you propose for that, friend? Can't sign a piece of gauze. Sure you can. Oh, come You know what on. I propose? No, you, put, you put stickers on it. That's what my kids prefer anyway. Sticker. That's Sticker on the gauze. That's because they're too young to have experienced the joy of signing a cast. Not too young for a torus fracture. 
Editor's commentary. In this large and well-done randomized trial from 23 emergency departments in the UK, the authors found equivalence in satisfaction, pain, and clinical outcomes between offering a gauze wrap and a mobilization for kids with isolated acute torus fractures of the distal radius. It's informative that parents would not have been happy with no treatment at all, which highlights the value of shared decision-making. Know that no treatment or just some gauze is a safe option and allows for a quick discharge, but if parents want a removable splint, truthfully, that is okay too. Abstract number two, derivation and validation of a four-level clinical pretest probability score for suspected pulmonary embolism to safely decrease imaging testing. This is by Roy et al., and it's in JAMA Cardiology. So this is a really interesting article that actually initially escaped our search strategy on the first pass. I'll have to blame Sanjay for that. And it was actually sent to us by a listener a few months ago, and initially we weren't really sure whether to cover it because we're generally pretty religious about trying to keep things really up to date. That's one of the real big cornerstones of what we do in EMA. But over time, we've heard a little bit more and more about this study, and so we decided to go back and cover it. It was published in June of 2021. So for most of you out there listening, you know, three years behind on your EMA, that was four years ago. For those of you who are up to date, that was last year. So the PAE diagnostic story is long and convoluted. Suffice it to say that now the key problem is that we are pursuing the diagnosis more and more. We are actually making the diagnosis more and more. The case fatality rate is dropping, but the overall population mortality due to PE is totally flat. All of this is an argument that we are over-pursuing and over-diagnosing inconsequential PEs, and it's not making a lick of difference in terms of overall population mortality. So the majority of research efforts are aimed at developing risk scores or other diagnostic aids that would reduce the need for continuing workups, reduce the need for CT imaging, etc. Things like, you know, age-adjusted D-dimer, Wells criteria, Geneva scores, year strategy, or maybe the PEG-ED. All of these are great, but they have some limitations. And most importantly is that no score rules out PE without further diagnostic evaluation, except for the PERC rule. Effectively, this means that people may be combining PERC along with age-adjusted D-nimer with the years and some risk stratification tool like Geneva or Wells or whatever. And that combined approach, you know, people do it, but it's not a validated approach overall. I think that it does highlight the fact that people practicing in academic centers and the community ED providers who are out there know this is a problem, Absolutely. right? It's probably just from their own experience. They like keep ordering a bunch of CTPAs that come out negative. So people are hungry actually looking for, for a way mm-hmm. to not do this, to take the probability down far enough as to where they don't have to send a D-dimer. Or so this is, you know, it seems yeah. like we're asking for this. Yeah. And if we don't do it, we know what happens. We spend a lot of time working these people up. We get these small things that are identified or inconclusive studies, and now we're putting people on, you know, anticoagulants for long periods of time, and there's uncertain diagnoses, then they come back and, you know, it's just a big problem. So this four PEPs study, four PEPs, this four-level clinical pretest probability for PE study represents an ambitious attempt to derive a score that would do all of it. And in this study, they wanted to derive the score 
internally and externally validate the score. So this is a lot of study. The reason it's called four peps is because it creates four levels of PE probability. Very low risk, and that very low risk should not require any further testing, including D-dimer. Okay, so it gives a score that's like so low, you can just walk away. Low risk, which should rule out PE with a negative D-dimer. Moderate risk, which should also rule out PE with a negative D-dimer, but a different threshold of D-dimer. And high risk, which is very high risk, in which case a D-dimer is not sufficient to rule out PE and you need to jump straight to CTPA, and then that would sufficiently rule out PE or rule it in if, if it's positive. Again, the study describes the derivation, the internal validation, the external validation of this four PEPs approach and compares it to other strategies like Geneva, Wells, blah, 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 to determine if this new strategy that they've just derived and validated is safe and effective. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a long paper and it's really, really well done and well described. The basics, I can't go into all the details, but the basics of it are that they use three prospective studies of 5,800 patients from Europe and the US to derive and internally validate the four PEPs criteria. So they didn't collect new data. They used existing data sets that were obtained prospectively. They then split that cohort in two, and then they used the first half of that to derive the four PEPs rule using a stepwise regression method to identify variables that are significantly associated with higher or lower probability of PE. Then they assigned points to those variables because some of them were more highly associated than others. And what they ended up with was this rule. It has 12 variables in it. They then check that model, that 12-variable model, using the other half of that derivation study or that derivation cohort to make sure that it still works, that it wasn't just some weird vagrancy of data that it worked in one half and not in the other. They then validate that model externally against two completely different cohorts of patients, another 3,000 patients from the United States and Europe. And then finally, they apply the PERC strategy, age-adjusted D-dimer strategy, years, PEGI-D strategy, and the 4-PEP study to that cohort to see you know, what the yield was and the potential savings of CTs, diagnosis, et cetera, was. Does that all make sense to you? It does, but so all of it was done on pre-existing that data. That is correct. Right, but all sets of the-, the Five different data sets. And the validation stages. All of it was done on data that was collected- so they didn't, they didn't roll any of their own patients. Yeah, it was, well, yeah, I think these guys these and these people who did these studies were the PIs for all of those five things, but they didn't do it specifically for this four PEPs study. So the ultimate- Four PEPs rule, as I mentioned, has 12 criteria that I can't go, 12 criteria is too many, but they're pretty familiar. You know, you can go on MD Calc and they're there and they're the usual SATs and heart rates and, you know, various things about is PE more likely than anything else, et cetera. So they're all in there. And it, if you plug it in, it generates scores from negative four to 22. Scores less than zero are very low pretest probability in both the derivation and validation cohorts, meaning that they have less than 2% risk of PE. And so the authors say further diagnostic testing, whether D-dimer or CTPA, is unnecessary in that cohort. Scores that are greater than 13 are very high pretest probability. And when I say very high, I mean very high. 65% of those patients had a PE. And in that context, D-dimer is not sufficient to rule it out 
So you need to proceed directly to CT scanning. In the middle are the two low and moderate risk categories. And they say that in the low risk category, so I don't remember what the score cutoff for that is, you can use a D-dimer threshold of 1,000, sort of like the years, right? It's like a low risk kind of deal or the PEG-ED, if you will, both of them. And then in the moderate risk group, the D-dimer cutoff is the age-adjusted cutoff or 500 if they're you know, relatively young. So, so that's the derivation, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, punchline here, what did the external validation show? It showed that the four PEP strategy had a false negative rate of around 0.7 to 0.9%. And that just depends on whether it was cohort one or two. Remember, there were two external validation cohorts, and which was actually just a little bit higher than most of the other strategies like adjust PE years and PEG-ED. Each of those was around 0.5%. But, and this is important, the a priori said, look, if the upper limit of the miss rate, of the confidence interval of the miss rate is less than 2%, we're good. And in both validation cohorts, the upper limit was around 1.6%, so less than the 2%. So they're, they're saying that this is good. They also note that there were 14 missed PEs, right? So that's the, you know, how you get to that uh, 0.7 or 0.9% miss rate. And all but three were little segmental ones. So if you take away those little tiny ones, subsegmental. Boy, yeah. The, well, they weren't proximal PEs. Sorry. And so those are, there's controversy about whether those even need to be treated. So if you take away everything, then you're talking about three missed cases and it's an order of almost an order of magnitude lower miss rate. Very, very safe. The upside of the four PEPs compared to the other strategies, since you know, if there's a downside, it's like maybe not quite as sensitive, is that it would reduce CT scanning and D-dimer testing by about 10 to 15% compared to the other approaches. Okay. So, you know, that's pretty good. And and there really is a lot to like here in this study. It's a very, very serious attempt by very, very serious, well-known investigators using five large ED-based PE cohorts to derive and validate this rule. It generates a score that could eliminate the need for D-dimer testing and incorporates other sort of state-of-the-art cutoffs that we're talking about, 1,000 points for D-dimers of 1,000 when it's low risk and you know, age-adjusted when it's moderate risk and all that kind of stuff. So it does all of these things and brings in together what I think a lot of us are doing out there in the field and sort of validates that approach. But there are, it must be stated, there are things not to like. And the first one's, I think, really important, and you already alluded to it, and that's that these criteria were applied to data sets for external validation. So this is what might have happened if the rules were applied, not what actually did happen. It's possible that the miss rate would be a little higher, but more likely it's possible that the CT avoidance rate might be lower. Right. That is in real life, it may be that a lot of those people who were four peps negative might have got a CT anyway because the doc was like, you know, look, I'm going to stage the cancer. So might as well do the PE protocol to do that. And that's, that's a real phenomenon that happens all the time when you might get additional information through CT scanning. And therefore, it actually doesn't avoid the CT scan if the rule says it's not a PE. Further, it's really, it's just really, really important to validate these things prospectively. Because application of the criteria in the real world is not uniform, right? Two doctors might disagree on whether in this particular case, this person is more likely to have P or another, and that might change the score itself 
and it might result in more or less failure rate. Usually in further external validation, it results in more failure rate. So when you're looking at cleaned prospective data, it makes it seem like all of this is very, very easy to do and there's no variation and blah, blah, blah. But when you get into prospective validation in the real world, things start to fall off the rails a little bit. Still, I think it's really good. I'm very optimistic for this type of approach. It solves a lot of our needs in the preliminary data, which is not super preliminary. Remember, it's a derivation. It's an internal validation. It's external validation is quite promising. Editor's commentary. This is an excellent attempt to derive and validate a four-level PE approach that would allow for clinicians to rule out PE on clinical grounds for very low-risk patients and use higher cutoffs for D-dimer in low-risk patients while maintaining overall sensitivity. The external validation showed that four PEPs had a slightly higher false negative rate than other approaches, but with improved specificity. The retrospective nature of the validation does give some pause, and while I would not fault a clinician for being willing to use this now, I think it would be better to wait until further prospective validation. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Non-sterile gloves and dressing versus sterile gloves, dressing, and drapes for suturing of traumatic wounds in the ED, a non-inferiority multi-center randomized controlled trial. This by Zwans et al. from Emergency Medicine Journal. So traumatic wounds, lacerations seen in the ED could all be considered to be contaminated. Right on some Fair level, enough. anyway, because they it didn't is get funny. an iodine scrub before it happened. This is yeah. This is a quote from the paper, and I really like it. And they say, you know, you could consider them all to be dirty because they arise in non-sterile skin in a non-sterile environment and are caused by non-sterile objects. <laughs> Boom! Just lay it out for me. So the wound is not sterile. I think we can all agree to that on some level. Should we be sterile? That's really the question. There's really only one study from the ED that was pretty small, published in 2004, which showed no value of using sterile gloves on reducing wound infection. And even though it was small and it's pretty old, I think most of us have said, that sounds good to me. I'm just going to use know, I'm, regular I'm like gloves. I'm stunned that there's only been one study on that because I feel like that's like, that's as proven in my mind as like, you know, that the sky is blue in Southern California. Yeah, the data most is days. actually not that big. So- this is a multi-center, single-blinded, the assessor was blinded, obviously, the treating clinician was not, randomized controlled non-inferiority trial testing non-sterile gloves and dressing versus sterile gloves, dressing, and drapes for the suturing of traumatic wounds among ED patients from three hospitals in the Netherlands. They excluded patients with complicated wounds, those who presented more than 24 hours after the injury and those with signs of infection at the time of presentation. And the primary outcome was wound infection. And they, had, they made their own definition of a wound infection was, and a wound was considered infected if at follow-up there was an abscess originating from the wound, if there was cellulitis more than 10 millimeters, if there was a purulent fluid, wound dehiscence was seen, and or the physician found wound treatment to be necessary at the follow-up appointments. That could have been antibiotics or suture removal or something like that. It's a very liberal definition of wound infection. I totally agree. And we're going to see how that impacts their wound infection rates a little bit. Yep. The non-inferiority margin was set at 2%. 
and they calculated that they needed to enroll just over 2,000 patients. They enrolled and randomized about 1,500 patients, and they had follow-up data for 91%, which isn't too bad. The mean age was 39 years, and about a third of the wounds were on the head and neck, another third were on the hands, 95% of them were less than 7 centimeters in length, 84% had no visible contamination, and 98% did not get antibiotics at the index visit. And those were all similar across the groups. The wound infection rate in the sterile treatment group was 6.8% versus a wound infection rate of 5.7% in the non-sterile group. Nailed it. And that's basically it, Yeah. right? They don't really talk a lot about secondary outcomes or something. They kind of give one value. This is a pretty clean study in that regard. There's no other data. There's no breakdown of which one of the options for being infected was actually present in the groups. You know, did they get a course of antibiotics or they actually need to like go to the OR or something like right. that? They don't give us that sort of nuanced level of data. So, you know, this is, they have a high follow-up rate. That's good. The clinical question is very good. With a patient-oriented outcome, that's also good. And they have blinded assessors, but they did fall short of their desired enrollment. They didn't have many patients who were maybe at high risk for infection those with diabetes, those on immunosuppressants, it was actually less than 5% of the sample they felt like had some risk of infection. And they had a higher than expected overall infection rate, which I think we can explain by what Mike said before. That's just a pretty loose definition of a wound infection. So it's interesting to me that although the difference was small, obviously, infections were higher in the sterile group, like maybe a percent higher. And I was kind of thinking about that for a while, and I'm like, maybe that could be explained by the lack of blinding. It's possible, I guess, that if the providers knew that they were going to be all kinds of steriled up, you know, drapes, gloves, chlorhexine, all this other stuff, maybe they were a little less thorough or, or aggressive with their irrigation and cleaning and stuff, which we know works. Like that has like a little bit of value. So maybe they were like, okay, I'm getting, I've taken all this time to get all this stuff out. Okay, just squirt stuff. I don't know. You really racked your brain for that one, buddy. I did. The numbers are the same. Well, I think they're largely the same, but I'm just, I guess the point I'm trying to make there is if there's even a hint of truth to what I'm saying, it does serve as a nice reminder that irrigation is incredibly- pollution is dilution. That's right. And that's what we learned in residency and it's still true. I have it tattooed right here. Look at that. Solution. You don't have a tattoo. I know I don't, but I'd like to get one that says solution to pollution is dilution. Uh, I will pay for that for you <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> I said I would like to do it. I didn't say I was going to do it. I would also not like to do it. I'm of two minds, as they say in the business. Editor's commentary. Although underpowered for their primary outcome, the authors of this non-inferiority study conclude that the use of sterile gloves and drapes is unlikely to decrease wound infections when closing lacerations in the ED. It should be noted that the wounds were pretty clean to start with, and not many patients had clinical features that would put them at high risk for infections. There are some issues with the study, but overall, it affirms the practice of relying on irrigation and dilution instead of being sterile when closing a laceration. Quick take. Abstract number four, and this is a quick take. Comparison of an emoji-based visual analog scale with a numeric rating scale for pain assessment by he et al. And this is in JAMA. 
The Journal of American Medical Association. Not JAMA. <laughs> yeah. I am not JAMA emoji, not, but ja- not, proper JAMA. Not, not JAMA. Proper JAMA. So this is a totally ridiculous study looking at the validity of an emoji-based visual pain scale comparing to our traditional numeric pain ranking scale. The authors from Mass General Hospital asked 80 patients to fill out the numeric ranking scale and this emoji-based scale. The numeric ranking scale, whatever, obviously goes from 0 to 10. We're quite familiar with that. The emoji-based scale went from an open-mouth smiling emoji to one with large torrents of tears streaming from its eyes. At random, patients were asked to fill out one scale before the other, right? So it didn't anchor on one versus the other. And then they use a kappa statistic to simply compare the ranking between the two scales. They only enrolled 98 patients. 98 patients in the ED. I don't even, I'm not 100% sure that all of them had pain. I think they did. I think they actually enrolled 107 patients and 98 had pain. So they, they got people to fill out this thing. These two, because they're two items. You know, click the number six and tell me which yellow emoji your face looks like. Got 98 of them, two scales. The kappa was very, very high between the two. It was 0.87, indicating great interscale reliability. And that's the study. I just can't believe you can get a paper into JAMA with 98 patients looking at emojis. I thought it was part of an April Fool's joke, honestly. Right now, if you can imagine the look on my face, it looks it's, very, it looks very much like that emoji, the with, wow the, with, emoji. The, with the teeth showing. No, mine is like the, oh. oh like so the I thought teeth it would be showing. the one with the big eyes and the, the round mouth emoji. You know, I think we both can agree maybe it should be the mind-blown emoji. <laughs> that's right. You know what? We should do a study of like six people and ask them what emoji this study is. This is very meta. A study us. within a study within a study. study about a study. Now we're inceptioning this thing, and I like it. Yeah, and that should be in JAMA Inception. I like it too. Anyway, it's particularly silly or seemingly silly when you consider that the emojis that they selected, right, on the scale are specifically selected because they look similar to that Wong Baker Facies pain scale that has been extensively validated throughout the literature. And the authors anticipate that and they say, yes, but, and it's, it's, not, a, it's not that bad of a but. The authors say that that Wong-Baker scale is not open source. You know, you can't just use that. So if you're trying to develop your own little app or whatchamacallit for doing emoji, or, you know, adapting your pain scale to digital world and all that kind of stuff, you can't use that without permission. Maybe there's cost associated with it. But you can use the Apple emojis. So there. Editor's commentary. An emoji-based pain scale had excellent agreement with the traditional numeric ranking scale. Potential advantages to this over other pain scales include that emojis are open source and easily adapted to digital platforms. Quick take. Abstract number five. Efficacy of benzodiazepines or antihistamines for patients with acute vertigo, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Hunter et al. from JAMA Neurology. This one is a quick take. So the treatment of vertigo in the ED falls largely into two categories. Number one, repositioning techniques, which are specifically used for BPPV. And number two, vestibular suppressant medications in the form generally of antihistamines or benzodiazepines. In this systematic review and meta-analysis, the authors assess the relative efficacy of benzos and antihistamines when compared to each other, other active comparators, 
placebo, or no intervention in the treatment of acute vertigo from any underlying cause. And they identified 27 RCTs on patients with nonspecific or peripheral vertigo, but excluded 10 as they did not report on the primary outcome of vertigo or dizziness at approximately two hours, officially somewhere between 30 minutes and four hours, or because there was not sufficient level of detail to include them in the meta-analysis, leaving 17 RCTs with just over 1,500 participants. Which is actually, if you'd asked me, I would have said, I'm surprised there's that many. Yeah, no, it's a pretty good number. And compared with single-dose benzodiazepines, single-dose antihistamines led to a 16-point reduction in vertigo symptoms on a 100-point VAS at two hours post-treatment. Interestingly, antihistamines did not perform other active comparators, including ondansetron, droperidol, and metoclopramide, but they did outperform the benzos, and most of them were looking at benzos. The numbers got a lot smaller in those other comparators. In terms of secondary, long-term focused outcomes, they found no evidence that benzos nor antihistamines were superior to placebo in terms of alleviating symptoms. The RCTs focused on the primary outcome, the two-hour impact of the meds, were assessed to be at low risk of bias, whereas the RCTs evaluating more long-term outcomes were assessed to be at high risk of bias. Limitations here include that most of the studies were small, various different medications and doses were used across the trials generating heterogeneity, many were published decades ago, making obtaining more detailed data for the meta-analysis near impossible, and a clinically significant difference in VAS for dizziness, unlike pain, has actually not been established. Editor's commentary. In this systematic review and meta-analysis, the authors found moderately strong evidence that antihistamines outperformed benzodiazepines for relief of dizziness in patients with undifferentiated vertigo at about two hours. They also suggest that daily medications had no value in improving long-term outcomes, but the evidence base was weaker for this finding. It is possible that other medications work even better, but we'll need trials to sort this out. For now, looks like we should rely on meclizine first. Abstract number six, excluding hollow viscous injury for abdominal seatbelt sign using CT. This is by Delaplane et al., and it's in GEM Surgery. Ah, the abdominal seatbelt sign. Much ado about something? In the olden days, the abdominal seatbelt sign was a deep bruise to the anterior lower abdomen associated with a lap belt, right? And it carried a very high risk of a hollow viscous injury. One famous study, this one was out of UCLA, you know, like right sort of when we were training, maybe a little bit before we were training, showed that hollow viscous injury occurred in about 25% of cases with isolated abdominal seatbelt sign. These findings drove the common practice of CT scanning everyone with abdominal seatbelt sign, but because CTs were not super great at detecting small tears in hollow viscous, the patients were also usually admitted for observation, serial examinations, etc. So you have a bruise on the belly, you got the automatic CT, and you got to stay for a day or two. More modern studies have suggested three things. First, abdominal seatbelt sign today is less likely to be a deep bruise across the lower abdomen and more likely to be a small abrasion over the lower abdomen caused by 
or mid-abdomen for that matter, caused by like a shoulder strap on a three-point harness seatbelt. It's just different. Yeah, we're just, we're just a little more loosey-goosey with what we call yeah, abdominal seatbelt right. sign. Second, the risk of injury in that context has been shown to be lower than 25%, substantially so, but there's like, like wide estimates of that. And third, modern multi-slice helical CTs can pick up tiny amounts of fluid or hematomas around bowel wall that should present if you have an actual hollow viscous tear or, any, or something like that. Altogether, this should, at a minimum, suggest that we do not need to admit people to observation just because of an abdominal seat belt sign, especially since they'll all have gotten a CT scan. The authors here conduct a nine-center prospective evaluation to estimate the sensitivity of CT scan for hollow viscous injury among patients with an abdominal seatbelt sign. Honestly, the methods are pretty spotty, but it seems as though all patients with abdominal seatbelt sign defined according to the treating surgeon who also got a CT scan were included. Adult patients who were discharged without a scan or those who went to the OR without a scan were excluded, as were pregnant women. The key outcome was the number of patients who had a negative initial CT scan, but ultimately had a proven hollow viscous injury. Over a one-year period between 20 and 2021, at these nine sites, there were 754 patients included who had both that seatbelt sign and got a CT. 69 of them, so 9.2%, had a hollow viscous injury. So, you know, at first, the first finding is that that's a much lower rate than the 25% that was previously reported. And these were not isolated abdominal seatbelt signs. These are patients who had other stuff as well. Of note, patients with hollow viscous injury had a FAST scan that was positive only 28% of the time. So FAST scan is not good at detecting hollow viscous injury, which is natural. We think that you, know, you have to have a lot of fluid in there, not just a little hematoma around your duodenum or something like that. Ultimately, there was only one patient out of the 69 that had a negative CT Okay, and that, that's a 1.5% miss rate. But that patient had a paracolonic hematoma on CT. So I'm not sure why they thought that was negative. They, they have a list. They said these were what we thought would be, we'd consider positive, and paracolonic hematoma was not one of them, but it was plainly wrong, and they knew it right away, and it's not like there was a delay in diagnosis or anything like that. So I think they were just being probably very true to their methods, even if Ultimately, that was a little untrue to the truth, if that makes sense. They do not describe any other aspects of that particular patient's exam. There's a lot more analysis in this paper that I frankly found quite confusing and somewhat contradictory. The methods are far from pristine and not well prescribed. It's unclear, for example, who made the assessment of the seatbelt sign, and there was no specific guidance on what constitutes a seatbelt sign. It's just sort of, they just kind of leave it up to the, according to the trauma service. But the key point that a negative CT likely rules out hollow viscous injuries, I think, is sufficiently evidence-based, not just by this study, but by the preponderance of the evidence that it can be widely adapted, particularly at institutions that don't have the luxury of surgical observation units. Editor's commentary. This multi-site study showed that patients with an abdominal seatbelt sign and negative CT scan had a very low, if not no, risk of hollow viscous injury. Though the study has limitations and there was concern about one case, 
the overall evidence is becoming clear that a negative CT scan can effectively rule out hollow viscous injury unless clinical findings are extremely worrisome. Abstract number seven. One-year outcome trajectories and factors associated with functional recovery among survivors of intracerebral and intraventricular hemorrhage with initial severe disability. This is by Shaw et al. from JAMA Neurology. So about a year ago on the EMA program, I covered the TRAC TBI study, in which the authors described a more optimistic view of recovery from traumatic brain injury than was previously thought to be the case where at one year post-injury, approximately half of the patients with severe TBI and two-thirds of the patients with moderate TBI were actually able to function independently for at least eight hours a day. This study attempts to provide similar one-year outcome data for patients with non-traumatic intracerebral and intraventricular hemorrhage with initial very poor functional status. The authors conduct a post-hoc longitudinal analysis of prospectively collected participant data from two different studies, the clot lysis evaluating accelerated resolution of intraventricular hemorrhage phase three, the CLEAR-3 trial, and the minimally invasive surgery plus alteplase for ICH evacuation, the MISTI-3 trial, including 500 patients and 499 patients with spontaneous bleeds, respectively. So of the 999 patients, 11.5% or 115 had died by day 30. 15%, about 150, had good neurologic function, defined as an MRS from 0 to 3, and about 70% of the cohort had poor neurologic function, MRS of 4 or 5, and that's at one month after the bleed, which is their final pooled cohort, that 70% with poor function at one month. I see. The mean so age... they've siphoned off all the people who were doing well already. That's right. Okay. So making it a little less relevant, these numbers, to sort of like what we might see in the ED, because this is really not an evaluation you can make till a month later. But I guess the point is that people who seem really bad at one month, they probably seemed really bad in the ED, so they... Okay. We'll see what happens to them. Okay. Got so it. the mean age was 60 years, 58% male, and about 70% white. Between day 31 and one year, about 20% of the cohort had died, and about 45% had achieved an MRS of 0 to 3. So just a little bit under half actually had a little bit of a better neurologic outcome. The average improvement across the sample of patients was one point. One of the primary goals of the study was to identify factors associated with outcomes. And in their multivariable regression model, they found that diabetes at an adjusted odds ratio of 0.5, the National Institute of Health stroke scale score, a worse score at an adjusted odds ratio of 0.9, severe leukoaraiosis, which I didn't know what that was. It's a very particular abnormal change in the appearance of the white matter near the lateral ventricles. So it's some radiologic finding at an odds ratio of 0.3, pineal gland shift at an odds ratio of 0.87, acute ischemic stroke at an odds ratio of 0.44, use of a gastrotomy at an odds ratio of 0.3, and persistent hydrocephalus by day 30 at an odds ratio of 0.37 were all associated with poor outcomes or lack of recovery. Resolution of the intracranial hemorrhage or intraventricular hemorrhage at 30 days 
was associated with a better one-year outcome. So if all the blood was gone, the adjusted odds ratio there was a 1.82. Now, this is overall interesting data, similar, I think, to the track TBI study, but the generalizability to all ED patients, like sort of applying it to everybody we see with a spontaneous bleed, is a little bit limited by the fact that their cohort consisted of patients meeting very strict inclusion criteria to get into one of the two original clinical trials. So unlike track TBI, which is like everybody, um, this is you already had to jump through like 10 hoops to be included in the study. So a lot of people got ruled out from the front and the fact that they were in clinical trials with very stringent monitoring requirements and some interventions and treatments, which could have theoretically improved the outcomes of the overall cohort. So there's some limitations, but I think the general message is the same that Actually, a lot of these people are going to get better, even if they look really bad at a month. Editor's commentary. In this pooled data analysis from two large randomized controlled trials on patients with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage and intraventricular hemorrhage, the authors report that about 40% of patients with poor functional status at 30 days can improve to at least acceptable functional status at a year. Generalizability of their findings is limited by the strict inclusion criteria to get into the original trials, but overall, they paint a more optimistic view about prognosis than you might have previously expected. Abstract number eight, thrombectomy alone versus IV alteplase plus thrombectomy in patients with stroke, an open-labeled, blinded outcome, randomized, non-inferiority trial. This is by Fisher, and this is also in Lancet. So here we go again. Alteplase plus thrombectomy versus thrombectomy alone for patients with large vessel occlusion. This is proving to be a particularly challenging stroke topic. Because you have been slowly, I think, marching us down the path of we probably don't need to give thrombolytics if we're going to go grab that clot. That's right. And since I have read the abstract, I know that you may have to rethink it. (laughs) So, yeah, the brief history lesson here is that when endovascular therapy for large vessel occlusion proved its value, it was an add-on to alteplase for patients who presented within the alteplase window of 4.5 hours. The logic, the mechanistic logic was that, well, the alteplase gets in there and it kind of softens up the clot. And then, you know, you go retrieve the clot, makes it easier to retrieve. Sometimes it may even recanalize it before you get in there so that it has that little advantage. And then when you grab that clot, little bitzels of it break off and go further downstream, and the alteplase sort of slops that all up and makes it go away. So that's the logic behind having both of them. Endovascular therapy, of course, has a role for people outside that alteplase window as well. But this was followed by a few trials looking at lower doses of alteplase or tenecteplase for people undergoing EVT that showed equivalent results actually culminated in two trials from China that showed patients with large vessel occlusion presenting within that 4.5-hour time window had similar, non-inferior, that is, outcomes when they were treated with EVT alone or EVT plus alteplase, and usually with lower bleeding rates. So some lauded this as a breakthrough, maybe no more alteplase for such cases. In practice, this is kind of a pain because it requires the determination of whether the patient goes to endovascular therapy first, and then the decision to make alteplase or whatever, as opposed to just the visualization that there's no bleed and then giving alteplase, but whatever. 
The criticisms of those trials were that they occurred largely in Asian people who may have different stroke phenotypes that might not generalize to all populations. That has to do with intracerebral calcifications and things like that. In addition, there was criticism that the non-inferiority margins were too generous, allowing for demonstration of non-inferiority too easily. Several contemporaneous trials have been undertaken to address these criticisms, and this is one of two of those that were published in Lancet this month. So this is part of a twofer in Lancet. We're only doing one of them because they have the same results, and we selected this one purely based on it being slightly larger than the other one, although the other one was pretty large as well. It's an individual-level, open-label, randomized clinical trial comparing you know, altiplacin thrombectomy to thrombectomy alone in Canadian and European centers. The key outcome was the proportion of patients with an MRS less than or equal to two between the two groups. And it was set up as a non-inferiority design with a non-inferior margin of minus 12%. Minus 12%. So that is to prove that EVT alone was non-inferior to EVT plus altiplase, the lower edge of the confidence limit for the difference for EVT alone could not be less than negative 12%. So it could be like negative 18% or something like that. Inclusion criteria were intentionally chosen to select for patients with best chance of benefiting from EVT. They had to have a large vessel occlusion of the internal carotid or the first segment of the middle cerebral artery, the M1 segment. Some of these studies include M2 segments. Some of them use other strokes like posterior circulation strokes and stuff like that. And those are known to be more difficult to roto-rooter out of there. So this was like sort of optimal for EVT kind of study. In addition, they had to be able to get EVT very, very rapidly. And they had to have, uh, sorry, and they were excluded if they had, you know, really, really bad strokes or had pre-existing disabilities. Over four years, they enrolled 423 patients across 42 centers across Canada and Europe and they were highly specialized and able to perform EVT very quickly. The mean age was 72, and basically the patients were well-balanced across the treatment arms. This is a very important little factoid. The mean time from symptoms to randomization, and to be randomized, you had to have symptoms, get to an ER, have a scan, have a scan that proved that you had a large vessel occlusion, right? All of that did occur on average at 120 minutes. So these are really, really fresh, acute strokes. What'd they find? 57% in the EVT alone group had good clinical outcome. And again, MRS less than or equal to two. 65% in the EVT plus altiplase had that same good clinical outcome. So an absolute difference of 7%. The confidence interval for that difference ranged from minus 16% to plus 2%, which extends beyond that negative 12% margin, so EVT alone cannot be considered non-inferior. Importantly, the confidence interval crosses zero, so EVT plus altiplase cannot be considered superior either. So we've got not non-inferior and not superior, and usually when that happens, we get a little note from our editors going, what are you guys writing here? This well, is those not- are always, because <laughs> I do like the copy editing on the back end of the abstract, those are always a fun one for me to look through like, because it's been yeah. edited over so much and I yeah. have to edit it right back to what Mike said, yeah. which is actually correct, but incredibly confusing. Right. Not non-inferior. That's superior. 
No, it's not. It's not non-inferior. Okay, so the other one's superior. No, it's not superior either. <laughs> so there you go. So EVT is simply not non-inferior to EVT plus alteplase, but you know EVT plus alteplase is also not superior. Reperfusion rates were 5% higher in the EVT plus alteplase group, at least giving a plausible mechanism for why they had better outcomes. This is the same result that was seen in the companion study published this month. In terms of safety, there were more bleeding events in the alteplase group, 34% versus 29% had head bleeds in that group, and extracranial bleeding was a little bit more common in that group as well. Uh, like 6% had groin hematomas versus 2%. But when you add it all together and crunch it, then functional outcomes were, you know, as I already stated. There are limitations to this trial, of course. Probably most significant is that it was open label to the treating team. However, it was blinded to the assessment team, and so that probably mitigates most of that. Although most of the trial seems to be biased towards EVT, giving it the best shot at working, you know, being clots that you could go get and all that kind of stuff, the one thing that biases it in favor of TPA is the very early stroke symptoms the patients were experiencing. Average time about two hours before they got this whole, you know, got into treatment from symptom onset. So if TPA works at all, as many have noted before, it probably works best in this very, very early stroke subset, but that's actually a very uncommon thing in normal practice where, you know, we usually are getting people that are more in like that three and three and a half hour mark. And it's a little unclear in that context if Alteplase would have an advantage. But that I'm just throwing it out there. That's not assessed. They don't do a, a divide up into those different subgroups. Yeah, but that is, and I know that, you, I mean, you really, you do a nice job talking about these stroke papers. You talk about them a lot, but that is a comment you have brought up a lot is that it is hard to take these results and apply them in a real world setting because nobody looks like this. You know, there is just, we never have that. We never have somebody who's getting their clot taken out two hours after, it's like two hours after being in the ED is an accomplishment, yeah. you know, like from right. symptoms. So it is, that is one of those things that people who don't like, you know, or who are, you know, fans of or don't like TPA or whatever it is, they always do hold on to that yeah. argument that, well, come on, man. How am I supposed to apply this in my practice because this just doesn't reflect right. my and practice I think at even, all? I think even like a Jerry Hoffman, I think in the original criticisms of NINs and stuff like that, we're like, yeah, the entire treatment effect is like the zero to 90 mark. Like that's where in everything beyond 90 minutes is all just, you know, not real or, you know, it was really quite negative. I think Schreiger's done that, that, that uh, reanalysis of that over time and shown that again. And so- you know, when you lump it together and because they had a large proportion of their patients in that very, very, very early window, it looks okay. You know, I can't comment on that particularly. This paper doesn't comment on that. It does stack it a little bit towards the alteplase group. But, you know, overall, this is a somewhat disappointing result for TPA hitters like myself, but it is consistent with at least two other trials. The one that was published this month and there was one that we covered previously about that. So it's starting to look a little true. And it may be especially convincing because the deck was stacked a little bit in this trial to select patients most likely to benefit for EVT. Editor's commentary. This is a second trial demonstrating that EVT alone is not non-inferior to EVT plus alteplase for patients inside the 4.5 hour stroke window. The results continue to be somewhat inconclusive, but the pendulum seems to be swinging towards EVT plus alteplase for such cases. Abstract number nine. 
Awareness with Paralysis Among Critically Ill ED Patients, a prospective cohort study. This is by Fuller et al. from Critical Care Medicine. So awareness with paralysis not only sounds absolutely horrifying during the moment when it's occurring, but has also been suggested to be associated with long-term consequences, including PTSD, anxiety, and development of phobias. Known risk factors for being awake and paralyzed include IV medications, as compared with inhaled medications, underdosing, the use of long-acting paralytics, and lack of a protocolized sedation depth monitoring system. All of these are more likely to be seen in the ED when compared to the operating room. A few years back, we covered the ED awareness study, which showed 2.6% of patients in the ED receiving mechanical ventilation actually remembered being awake and paralyzed and that those patients had a higher degree of perceived threat. This was, as noted at the time, a single-site study and the only published study to date addressing the issue. This is a follow-up study conducted actually by the same author group who are doing a a priori planned secondary analysis of awake with paralysis events collected during the ED-SED pilot trial, which was conducted across three different emergency departments. It was a consecutive sample of adult ED patients intubated in the ED that received a neuromuscular blocker. The methods are essentially exactly the same as the ED awareness study, using a combination of tools to distinguish between awareness in patients with paralyzed, which is the Bryce questionnaire, and appropriate recall of memories while being sedated in the ICU. Because that's okay to have a little bit of a memory while you are you know, sedated at some point in ICU state, but you shouldn't be awake when you are also actively paralyzed in the ED. Patient awareness and paralysis was independently adjudicated by three expert reviewers who are provided with patient responses to the questionnaires qualitative reports of the patient experiences, and pertinent clinical information, including data regarding the use of analgesics, sedatives, and neuromuscular blocking agents. So of 388 patients, 13, or 3.4%, were adjudicated to have awareness while paralyzed. The majority of patients with awareness while paralyzed received rocuronium, 12 out of the 13, over 90%, or looked at another way, 5.5% of patients who received rocuronium experienced awakeness with paralysis, awareness with paralysis, compared to 0.6% of patients who did not receive rocuronium in the ED. And that's an odds ratio of almost nine. Patients who experienced awareness while paralyzed had higher measured values on the threat perception scale than those who did not. They also provide patient-specific qualitative data, and the patients who experienced this, who were awake while paralyzed, their testimonials are absolutely terrifying, and they reflect very vivid recollections of pain during procedures, of being physically restrained, and feelings of impending death. Basically, they wanted to die or felt like they were going to die. So this is a extremely rigorously conducted study with compelling findings, but limitations include still a small overall sample size. In fact, it's pretty similar to their initial studies just spread out across three different EDs and an even smaller number of patients with the outcome of interest and, of course, a subjective primary outcome. But there's no doubt 
I mean, we see paper after paper about this. This is a serious issue. It's one we need to be aware of. Particularly take note of this rockyronium thing. If you're using rock, which you are, which you are, make sure to use some sedation. Editor's commentary. In this multi-site follow-up study to the ED awareness trial, the authors found that 3.4% of adult patients in the ED receiving mechanical ventilation remembered being awake and paralyzed, and those patients had a higher degree of perceived threat. This is an unacceptably high proportion and a sobering reminder that we need to prioritize post-intubation sedation, particularly when rocuronium is used for paralysis. Abstract number 10, incidents and risk factors of overcorrection in patients presenting with severe hyponatremia to the emergency department. This is by Sumi et al. And it's in clinical and experimental nephrology. Not just clinical nephrology, clinical and experimental nephrology. Yeah, which is, I think, the better one of the two. (laughs) I think it is too. So severe hyponatremia, the authors assert, is the most common electrolyte abnormality seen in hospitalized patients. You know, it's either that or hyperkalemia. You tell me. I don't know. Symptoms of severe hyponatremia are all the bad things that occur with brain swelling, confusion, stupor, seizure, herniation, etc. In those cases, rapidly increasing the sodium with hypertonic saline is a good idea. However, most of the time when this is seen in the ED, hyponatremia is only mildly symptomatic, and the real problem occurs when we intentionally or inadvertently reverse it too quickly, which puts the patient at risk for the condition formerly known as central pontine myelinolysis, now known in the business as the osmotic demyelination syndrome. The incidents of this syndrome, or estimates of it, are all over the place, but it's plainly associated with rapid overcorrection of hyponatremia. The point of this study was to estimate the frequency of overcorrection of hyponatremia among a cohort of ED patients to identify any potential factors that were associated with overcorrection and if there were any cases of osmotic demyelination syndrome to try to figure out if there's any relationship there. Overcorrection was defined as an increase in sodium of greater than 10 milliequivalents per liter at 24 hours or greater than 18 milliequivalents per liter at 48 hours. And that's a pretty forgiving definition. Usually the target is more like five milliequivalents per liter in 24 hours and maybe, you know, 10 over 48 hours. But the usual definition of overcorrection is more like 10 and 18. But remember, we're not even, it's not like we're trying to hit 10. We're trying to hit five. So overcorrection is, you know, doubling it. They identified 50 total patients over a two-year period who were ED patients admitted for hyponatremia. The median age was 82, and the mean initial sodium was 118. That does seem to fly in the face of their argument that this is the most common electrolyte abnormality. Uh, yeah. Two and, and, years. And I know. I, don't, I can't explain it. And there was some stuff in this paper that was kind of weird, and they talked about nephrology consultation and stuff. It didn't say that these were people who had this and got a nephrology consultation. In fact, they kind of made mention that some of them didn't get a nephrology consultation. So I can't explain. It seems low. It seems really low to me. 12% of those, though, met criteria for overcorrection at 24 hours. There were no cases identified of osmotic demyelination syndrome. So that's good. But 12% met criteria for overcorrection. In the univariate analysis, 
symptomatic hyponatremia, and 3% saline use were associated with overcorrection. All of the patients who got 3% saline got it as a continuous infusion as opposed to a bolus infusion. They don't really make a big deal about that, but they say it. And just for the record, you know, we covered that salsa trial from, I don't know, it's been at least a couple of years now that showed that continuous infusions of 3% saline to correct hyponatremia tends to overshoot compared to intermittent bolusing of 3% saline. Yeah, I know we covered it a few years ago, but I don't feel like that's really made it into the mainstream practice of most ICUs. Not sure, but I feel like they're still using drips. Yeah, they might be. I don't know. But, you know, that, that it was just it's noteworthy that they were using this practice that, you know, according to that salsa trial, which is a big one, a big journal and stuff, is the sort of more best practice y thing. The authors acknowledge that this correction with 3% saline may have been necessary, right? I mean, these are people with severe symptomatic hyponatremia. Yeah, if you're seizing, you want to get the sodium a little bit right. quicker. That makes sense. Um, it just means that they're at risk for, you know, overcorrection. I think particularly if you leave it on once they stop seizing, you know, it's just a reminder that it increases the risk. There are so many issues with this study. It's like, you know, how much do you really make of it? It's single site. It's retrospective. It has basically no methods, like no method description whatsoever. All that's bad. What's worse is that the chronicity of the hyponatremia is not assessed or addressed at all. So the incidence of overcorrection could be much higher if the lion's share of those patients had chronic hyponatremia and no one even thought about trying to, you know, you get a liver patient there with a sodium of 126 who's had it forever. You're not even trying in any way to overcorrect them. So we don't know how many of these were like relative drops and maybe, you know, that 12% occurred in just those and it's really a much higher rate than that. So we really just don't know that. It also, importantly, does not at all address the degree to which ED management of the hyponatremia contributed to the overcorrection, which of course, as emergency physicians, we want to know as nephrologists, maybe they don't care. Still, I think it reminds us that overcorrection of severe hyponatremia is a real possibility and we should be very mindful about fluid choices in patients with this severe hyponatremia, particularly for those who either don't have like really bad symptoms or those who don't have some kind of a superseding indication for fluid resuscitation. And generally speaking, I think the solution in the emergency department is if they're minimally or asymptomatic to just avoid any saline infusion, normal or otherwise. Sounds like, uh, sounds like I was wrong. Maybe the good journal was the other, not the experimental. <laughs> Editor's commentary. This very limited single-site study demonstrated that overcorrection of severe hyponatremia occurred in 12% of cases. ED providers should be mindful of this possibility when treating such patients and be extremely judicious with saline infusion in patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. Abstract number 11. Outcomes of patients discharged from the PEDS-ED with abnormal vital signs. This is by Kazmiersak from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So vital signs are used at triage to determine patient acuity and if abnormal, might point towards a sicker patient, more severe illness, or a more severe condition. In adults, the practice of discharging patients with abnormal vital signs has been shown to correlate with adverse outcomes. But in pediatrics, it is much more common to send kids home if they generally look well 
even if their heart rate is a little bit elevated or something like or that. Or dramatically elevated, like 170, because they're screaming bloody murder. That's very Every time true. you show up with a uh, blood pressure cuff. Yeah, Mike has a very specific effect on children. You know, not <laughs> not most ev- people. Not everybody has that effect. When you walk in a room, everybody goes, ah! It's the opposite. Kids lie. Come on, kids, man. Kids do love Mike. It's true. <laughs> there is some evidence to support the practice of discharging kids home with abnormal vital signs, but very few have looked at it in terms of its association with outcomes. So the objective of this study was to determine if having an abnormal vital sign at the time of ED discharge was associated with an increased rate of return visit, admission, or adverse event within 48 hours. This is a retrospective study of kids, all kids, discharged from two academic pediatric emergency departments, one in Delaware and one in Florida. I'm not sure how those two hooked up. Oh, yeah, the Delaware, Florida. There's like I I was looking the other day at like some of these airlines and there's like 75 flights a day between Delaware. And this is, is I guess maybe that's like a like a LA San Francisco. I don't yeah, know. A, it seemed like an odd. This ain't no peanut butter and chocolate, but Delaware and Florida. They did basically an EHR query to identify kids seen in the ED discharged with at least one abnormal vital sign over a one year period which they defined as a heart rate, respiratory rate, or blood pressure outside of the 5th or 95th percentiles for age, an O2 sat less than 95%, and a temp of less than 97 or greater than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. The last recorded vital sign was considered the discharge vital sign. The methods on abnormal vital signs, sort of how they defined it, how they looked at the 5th percentile and all that stuff, honestly was excellent. But the methods for everything else, not that good. There is really very little description of any of the other parts of the study. In fact, there's almost none in the method section, including how they determined if the return visit was related, because that's what they were looking for, was related ED visits, and how they evaluated adverse events at 48 hours. I actually have no idea. I do know that they saw just under 100,000 kids in the year between the two emergency departments, 83,000 of which were discharged home. And of these, 21.3% had at least one abnormal vital sign on discharge. So this is just sort of like the state of play. We do this a lot. One out of five kids discharged has some abnormal vital sign. Of those with an abnormal vital sign, 2.26% returned to the ED within 48 hours compared to a return rate of 2.45% among patients discharged without an abnormal vital sign. So exactly the same. The number of admissions and 48-hour adverse events were low, but as mentioned previously, I don't really know how they assessed those outcomes at all. They generated several statistical models and end up concluding that the risk factors for a return visit were more than one abnormal vital sign at an odds ratio of 0.16, age less than three years old at an odds ratio of about 0.17, or if their initial acuity level was high at an odds ratio of 1.3. But I think one thing that's really important to remember is that these are just associations, right? And there is no evidence to show that you know if you did some intervention to make the heart rate better or make the temperature better, prior to discharge, or get them down to just one abnormal vital sign, 
that that would reduce the revisit rate. And I think that's important and it's just sort of like a general understanding of the limitations of this type of a study. So speaking of limitations, I guess, I mean, there's the standard limitations here of any chart review design, right, in terms of defining things and where they look for stuff and lack of a lot of the methods given. But it has the additional limitations, several of them, including the fact that there's no accounting for confounders here, such as medication or fluid use, no attempt to assess the impact of the magnitude of the vital sign abnormalities, you know, like maybe a temperature that's like, 108 is bad, you know, and 100.5 is not so bad, right? And it's also not clear to me if a return ED visit is really any kind of a surrogate marker for quality of care. Well, I agree with that one, but in fairness to the authors, I mean, like that's done all the time, you know, it's like, why is a, I have long struggled with that. Like you send someone home quickly and say, come back if you feel sick, I want to recheck you. That's like a, that's good care, not bad care. I don't, you know, but other people view it differently. So, so I think that, you know, if nothing else, we learn that we send kids home with vital signs a lot. The return rate is very, very low. And at least that they're and kind similar of, to people who had normal vital signs. Yeah. And if they're, if they're skimpy, look at it, it's not like they all kind of came in and went straight to the PICU. So there's that. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective cohort study, the authors conclude that about one-fifth of pediatric patients were discharged from the ED with at least one abnormal vital sign, and that the return rate for these patients was very low and not different from patients discharged with no abnormal vital signs. Having more vital sign abnormalities made you more likely to return, but the authors appropriately did not suggest this means we should spend time correcting a number before we discharge them is there is no evidence of causation. The methods leave a little bit to be desired, but the general message of not stressing over fixing a vital sign before discharge is a good one. Abstract number 12, clinical diagnosis of cholecystitis in emergency department patients with cholelithiasis is indication for urgent cholecystectomy, a comparison of clinical Ultrasound and Pathologic Diagnosis by Martin et al. And this is in the American Journal of Surgery. And I think this is a very important, but unfortunately very, very limited study. The main point is that in modern emergency medicine and surgery, we generally think, I sort of speak for all of us, we generally think of cholecystitis as a radiographic diagnosis, particularly an ultrasonographic radiology diagnosis with characteristic features such as a sonographic Murphy sign or pericholocystic fluid or gallbladder wall thickening, something like that, right? The diagnosis or the willingness to diagnose someone with, you know, presumed acute cholecystitis or cholecystitis in general may also be influenced by a few things like the, you know, WBC and LFTs and stuff like that. But I feel like ultrasound has taken a very prominent role. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Right. I, I think it's more than prominent. I yeah. think it's, it's like, like the whole judge, thing. jury. Actually, yeah. That's the whole thing. Yeah, right. It's like if now, they have it or they don't based on the ultrasound and everybody acts on that. Right. And ED docs now spend a considerable amount of time in training, learning how to look for those features on POCUS and do it reliably because it's become so important. The authors start off by noting that their clinical experience is full of cases in which the ultrasound was normal 
but they took the patient in the OR and they had acute cholecystitis on d- direct visualization and confirmed by surgical pathology. And I just want to pause and say these authors are surgeons, right? This, this is, is the American this is, Journal of Surgery. They're 100 percent surgeons. Surgery Journal. Yeah, so that's good to hear. So yeah, they like kind of wrote it in there, kind of like a like that pissed us off, <laughs> you know, sort of written that way. So the authors therefore sought to estimate the test characteristics of radiology ultrasound. So this is a point of care ultrasound. This is radiology ultrasound for cholecystitis. They conducted a retrospective chart review of all the patients who presented to a single institution. In this case, it was at, uh, I think, OU, Oklahoma University, with proven gallstones and had inpatient cholecystectomy. Okay. So patients who had surgery for cholecystitis. A calculus cholecystitis, gallstone pank were excluded. So too were patients who came to their ED and were discharged with the diagnosis of cholelithiasis, but didn't have surgery. The chart review methods are very poorly described. Let's just say that. Ultrasounds were considered positive if they had at least two findings of paracholecystic fluid, sonomurphy, or thickened gallbladder wall defined as greater than four millimeters, but they had to have two of those findings, not just one of those findings. Classification of outcomes was based on surgical path report, and patients could be classified as acute coli, chronic coli, so not cholelithiasis, but chronic cholecystitis, acute on chronic cholecystitis, or cholelithiasis without evidence of cholecystitis. A question that I probably already know the answer to. Did they re-look at all the images and kind of come up with, you know, like, did they have pericholocystic fluid? Or did they just look at the reads of the existing images? Hard to know. Hard Hmm. to know. Because it seems like it's possible that a tech would go, this is acute cholecystitis. Mm -hmm. Go to emergency department. And then if they were just doing the read, that would be read as negative in their methods. That's right. Well, I'm going to go into some problems with that. But they defined positive as those three things. Now, usually those are kind of things that are noted. How thick is the gallbladder wall? Is there paracolecystic fluid? But yes, absolutely, there might be. I'll get back into that in just a second. 308 patients met criteria, mean age 40. Overall, 95% of those 308 had some form of acute, chronic, or acute on chronic cholecystitis, which is obviously way, 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 way higher than you would see in a normal ED population, but that reflects that they all had an inpatient cholecystectomy, so someone really thought they had that regardless. How did radiology ultrasound do at differentiating? The sensitivity of radiology ultrasound was only 43% for acute cholecystitis, and it was much worse for chronic cholecystitis, 15%. Okay, so they make some mention of specificity, but that like really can't be taken seriously because most of the true negatives, right? People who had gallstones but no cholecystitis were discharged home and never got you know, the application of the test criteria. So that just doesn't have any meaning in this study. Now, there are many, many, so many things not to like in this study. It's single center. There's no methods, including the method that Sanjay just commented on. It's a really weird cohort of only those who underwent cholecystitis. And I feel it's an extremely restrictive definition of positive ultrasound requiring two criteria as opposed to just one and no real discussion of how other features like LFTs or any of that interacted with all of those other things. Obviously, a suggestive physical exam and an ultrasound that shows gallstones with like large amounts of paracholecystic fluid would be considered positive by like everybody on earth, right? 
they just that's negative according to their diagnosis, yeah, which is going to artificially severely reduce their sensitivity. Yeah, because that sensitivity of forty-seven percent is just not believable. Yeah, what you know, whatever that means, like less than half of patients With, who had their gallbladder taken out had a negative ultrasound. Yeah, yeah no, had a positive ultrasound. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, no, yes, I yeah, know, that's crazy. And you know, and it's unfortunate because it looks like they went through the effort to say, you know, look at those three criteria. It would have been pretty easy to just say, well, what if they just had that's one? That's right. How does it change? Because it might just go from 40 to 60, in which case, okay, best case scenario, it's 60% or 80 or what, whatever it is, you know, but it, I, don't, I don't know why they did that. It might have gone up to 100, in which case, you know, you've got some really disparate information. So we're just sort of stuck in the middle here. Still, I do think the, the point that ultrasound is far from perfect is worth making. In fact, the authors cite other studies that have shown the sensitivity of radiology ultrasound to be roughly 50 to 80%. Sensitive. So this study is, although it's extreme, it's a little more consistent than one might have thought at first blush. Because those, are, I mean, I did a study years ago on this, comparing POCUS ultrasound to radiology ultrasound for cholecystitis using surgical stuff as the gold standard. We found they were both eighty percent sensitive. I mean, POCUS was just as good, but still only eighty percent. So it's a reminder. The take-home point is that if someone, you know, you're treating a patient has had pain for several hours in the right upper quadrant, and there's you know some equivocation on the ultrasound, or there's gallstones on the ultrasound, but no other specific findings on that, you should still strongly consider that that's a case of acute cholecystitis, and that the ultrasound is not the arbiter of everything. Editor's commentary. This is a significantly limited study of patients who presented to a single ED and ultimately underwent an inpatient cholecystectomy. The results suggest that radiology ultrasound is poorly sensitive for cholecystitis. Though the results must be taken with a huge grain of salt, and more methodologically sound studies suggest the sensitivity is more like 80%, we should be aware of the general point that ultrasound-negative acute calculus cholecystitis is common, and providers should consider surgical evaluation for patients with symptoms of acute chole even when the ultrasound is negative. Quick take. Abstract number 13, analysis of outcomes associated with outpatient management of non-operatively treated patients with appendicitis. This is written by the writing group for the CODA Collaborative, and it's from JAMA Network Open, and this is a quick take. So the CODA study, the comparison of outcomes of antibiotic drugs and appendectomy, was a large randomized control trial from 25 centers here in the U.S. showing antibiotics were non-inferior to appendectomy in terms of general health, missed work, healthcare encounters, and several other patient-centered outcomes. But this has little relevance to most ED providers, as the strategy still here is admit the patient and let the surgeon decide if they want to watch them for 24 hours and discharge them, or if they want to operate within those 24 hours. But kind of from our end, it looks a little bit the same. This is a secondary analysis, and the lead authors on this are two good friends and frequent contributors to the program, Dave Tallon and Greg Moran, of the 776 patients from CODA randomized to the antibiotics arm. So just half of the study, basically, the ones that got uh, the non-op management, with several goals, but the primary one being to compare those who were discharged in less than 24 hours, which was about 46% of them, compared with those who were discharged in greater than 24 hours, which was about 54% of them. Because it looks like the time to discharge was actually not protocolized. 
So the serious adverse event rate at seven days was 0.9 per 100 in the what they called the outpatient group, quote, outpatient group, because they were discharged in less than 24 hours, compared with 1.1 per 100 in the inpatient group. Appendectomy occurred in 9.9% of outpatients and in 14.1% of inpatients. Basically, they're saying outpatient management appeared to be safe across a wide range of participants, including among those with an appendicolith and those judged to be able to be discharged within 12 hours of ED arrival, so pretty quick. The main limitation with interpreting their data is that as time to discharge was not randomized, it's very possible, I would say likely, that there's some unmeasured variable that was simply different among those who were discharged early. Like maybe they were just, for whatever eyeball reason, a lot less sick. So I have no idea really how to apply this in your practice, but I guess just know that there is a little more evidence now that not keeping them for more than 24 hours is probably okay. Edit this commentary. In this secondary analysis of patients with appendicitis enrolled in the CODA trial who were randomized to the non-surgical arm, the authors showed that outcomes were similar among patients who were discharged within 24 hours with those discharged in more than 24 hours. This calls into question the value of antibiotics for 24 hours prior to discharge and opens the door for an option of discharge from the ED but I don't think we can act on it until there is a trial designed to study this actual question as unmeasured variables might have impacted the time to discharge in this sample, meaning less sick people may have simply gone home quicker. Abstract number 14, South Texas Orbital Floor Protocol for Emergency Department Evaluation of Orbital Fractures by Jeffrey et al. This is in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And again, this is a messy paper attempting to derive an algorithm that can be used to decide which patients with orbital fractures require an emergency ophthalmologic consultation, an idea I generally like because especially well, because there's really a lack of available on-call ophthalmologists in the majority of community settings. So if you can figure out who doesn't need a consult, that'd be wonderful. First off, the authors start by stating that there are precious few indications for emergency surgery in the context of orbital fractures. These include true entrapment. And I use the word true because they distinguish that from muscle restriction. And they describe that, like how you differentiate that in a way that I have never done. Basically, you anesthetize the eye and you grab the eye and try to move it. So this is like an ophthalmologic procedure that can distinguish between true, like, no, it's stuck. Versus like, oh, your muscle is sprained, so it doesn't move as well. So that's one thing. Enophthalmos is another thing. So your eye gets punched back into your skull or brain or something like that. That seems pretty obvious that you would need an ophthalmologic consultation for that. And then the last one, there's only three. The last one is if you're suffering from the oculocardiac reflex, which is bradycardia, vomiting, syncope, and asystole, which apparently happens. <laughs> so let me just, I'm just taking notes over here. So if I have a patient punched in the eye, has asystole, call the ophthalmologist. Just want to make sure <laughs> I got that correct. It's not going to resolve until you fix the ophthalmologic issue. Uh-huh. That's the point. That's the point, dude. That eyeball is, it's the 
I, I'm sorry. And probably this so. is just like, you know, I read a lot. I went to a good med school. I studied a lot. But every once in a while, there's just like a total blind spot in my training. And I just don't know because I read this and I'm like, is this a thing? A oculocardiac reflex? Have you heard of this before? Sure. <laughs> the OCR? What are you talking about? That's like, I, I routinely document that on every patient that I, that I see. No, but it may be that there's other people out there that are like, you're so ignorant that you don't know about the oculocardiac reflex. I, I don't know. It just could just be a little blind spot in my, in my ophthalmologic knowledge pun, base. Pun intended? And the pun was unintended, but then became intended. So b- belatedly intended. Puns are like that. <laughs> a belatedly intended pun. Anyway, those are the three things. They conducted a single-site chart review of all the patients presenting to Brook Army Medical Center who were diagnosed with orbital wall fracture and had an ophthalmologic consultation. They note that ophthalmology consults are standard for all orbital floor fractures. So they say they saw them all, but they don't exactly explain it. They don't prove that in any kind of meaningful way. Because, and this is key, there were no methods. Like zero, I mean, it's impressively bad. And, you know, it brings, I'm, I'm a, it's kind of disappointing because this is actually the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. I'd like, you know, I'd like to think, hey, come on, we know better. You know, a lot of our people have, you know, focused on methodology for chart reviews and this is none. Over a two-year study period, they identified 379 patients, mean age 45, who had orbital fractures. The most common fracture was orbital floor at about 40%, followed by multiple orbital walls at about 40%. And then medial orbital wall fracture at about 14%. Emergent clinical features were identified in 35% of the cases. And then they go on to say that these included like open globe, that concern for entrapment, orbital roof fractures, retrobulbar, stuff that they didn't say was an a priori thing, but they, they were still very important. Retrobulbar hematoma, that was identified. Of those, of that 133 patients that you know had some kind of emergency thing, 71 of them, so just over half, underwent an emergent intervention. Most of the time, that was a surgical intervention to go disentrap something or a, a lateral cantholo- What's that word? Lateral canthotomy. Canthotomy and cantholysis. Cantholysis, yeah. So some of it was that, but some of it was non-surgical and included like, you know, giving drops to decrease the intraocular pressure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So from these data, the authors derive what they call the STOP protocol, the South Texas Orbital Fracture Protocol. And the protocol takes into account subjective findings, physical exam findings, and imaging findings to determine which patients need an emergency ophthalmologic evaluation. Subjective findings that would merit urgent or emergent ophthalmologic consultation were if they were pediatric patients, if they had decreased vision, double vision, that's it. Physical exam findings were eyelid lacerations, pupillary defects, motility defects, or the presence of the oculocardiac reflex. OCR. OCR, as Sanjay aptly points out. And radiographic findings were findings of an open globe, retrobulbar hematoma, roof fracture, or entrapment on CT. The authors then state that if ophthalmology consults had only happened for those conditions, the consult rate would have dropped by 50% without any misses at all. And while I approve of trying to drop consultation rates for these difficult consultations when nothing happens, this is totally misleading for two important reasons. First is actually kind of minor, really, but it's important to recognize. 
You simply can't derive a rule from a data set as they did in this case, and then apply the rule to the same data set. You just can't do that, right? It's like studying my drive home and saying anybody who takes, you know, every time he turns right three times left and then right again, he ends up at home. So anybody who turns right, you just can't do that. You have to study in another population, see if the results hold true, and then study in a third population, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, before you can really start to estimate any effect of applying this rule. As it is, this sort of derivation and validation within the same data set always grossly overestimates the effect of any potential rule. But I think the bigger thing, the second objection I have is, is more important. And that is that I think people are already doing this in the real world, right? I mean, we're a major receiving center for specialized care in Los Angeles, and we do not get emergent referrals for transfer to for ophthalmologic consultation for simple orbital floor fractures that are not severely entrapped or have other horrific eye pathology. You know, I appreciate that at their institution, they have a policy of automatic consultation for these fractures, but that's just not the case in community medicine. So any potential consults or transfers that may have been avoided by application of this rule is likely grossly overestimated because I think people are already doing sort of exactly this already. Editor's commentary. This is a small study with severely limited methodology that claims a clinical decision algorithm taking into account a limited set of subjective, objective, and radiographic variables could reduce ophthalmology consults by 50% safely. The indications for consultation presented are reasonable, but are likely already incorporated into the decision of whether or not to consult ophthalmology in the vast majority of EDs, making this 50% reduction estimate severely inflated. Abstract number 15. Performance of a qualitative point-of-care strip test to detect DOAC exposure in the ED, a cohort-type cross-sectional diagnostic accuracy study. This is by Marilar et al. from Thrombosis and Hemostasis. And this thing definitely sounds pretty cool. I love it. So direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, have largely supplanted warfarin as the main class of anticoagulants out there on the market. And although DOACs are superior in lots of ways, from a patient perspective for the most part, right? Decreased bleed risk, no need for getting your blood drawn routinely. When a patient on a DOAC, it's spinach, right? Popeye, you're welcome. When a patient on a DOAC presents with bleeding, this creates a challenge for ED providers because our available routine anticoagulation tests like INR, PT, PTT have very low reliability in assessing DOAC anticoagulation, and because formal levels, for the most part, cannot be rapidly assessed, although they can be in some places the test exists, and because it's just a little bit confusing when the patient took their last dose, how compliant are they. Now, one could simply err on the side of caution, and let's say, let's give drug-specific reversal agents to all of them with bleeding, but this is simply not practical as the agents themselves are very expensive. And like I said before, they might just be unnecessary. Well, and even they if- are generally prothrombotic too. I mean, like there's literally not a free lunch here. You know, there, there, it's expensive well, and there's complications. So it's unfree and unfree, right? <laughs> Now, a reliable point-of-care test could be a game-changer by accelerating the ability to make accurate decisions in these emergent bleeding situations. The DOAC dipstick 
is a urine qualitative strip intended to detect the presence of DOAX in urine, a urine sample after 10 minutes. And it actually has already been evaluated with some success in stable outpatients who are taking DOAX. So this was a prospective study from a single emergency department in Vienna enrolling adult patients with direct oral thrombin inhibitors, dabigatran, or factor 10A inhibitors, so that's your rivaroxaban, apixaban intake, based on a medical history who were able to provide a 10 milliliter urine sample. All participants also had quantitative blood levels for DOAX drawn and sent, which was used as the gold standard. They had data for analysis on 265 patients, 52% male, mean age 72 years, about 12% of which were taking dabigatran, and the vast majority of which were taking an oral factor 10A inhibitor. It's kind of like there's a couple of pads on the dipstick, basically, like a couple check for some urine characteristics, and then one pad each for the direct thrombin inhibitors and the factor 10A inhibitors. So the thrombin inhibitor pad identified dabigatran plasma levels of greater than 30 nanograms per milliliter, which is what some people tend to think is like a therapeutic level, with 100% sensitivity. And the, the bottom limit of the CI on there was 87%. And 98% specificity with no false negative results. The rate of false positive results was about 2% generating obviously excellent positive and negative predictive values. The factor 10A inhibitor pad identified levels of greater than 30 nanograms per milliliter with a sensitivity of 97.4% and a lower specificity at 70%. So accordingly, the false positive and false negative rates were just a little bit worse than they were with the dabigatran. The greater than 30 nanogram per milliliter plasma threshold, like I said, has been proposed as an effective treatment threshold, which is why they used it. But they also said, well, that there's a little bit of debate around that. So they tested their little pads, their little strip at thresholds ranging from three nanograms per milliliter all the way up to 300 and generally found the results to be unchanged. But that's just for the DTIs, for uh, the direct thrombin inhibitor. It's for both. Oh, it's for both. Okay. It's for both. So yeah, they did the range on both of them. And it seemed to work well across a wide variety of what they considered to be a therapeutic range. Now, although they didn't enroll sick patients who were actually bleeding, and I'm sure that's going to be a next step, this is actually a pretty well done study overall. The only thing I do think worth mentioning is that there's a relatively large conflict of interest here, as you might expect, that one of the authors is the CEO of the company that makes this DOAC dipstick. But still, it generally seems cool. I'm not surprised that these things are coming to the forefront, and I can't wait to get something like this in my ED at some point in time. Yeah, no, I know. It it sounds cool. I like the idea. There are going to be some questions, though, like this issue of it being so sensitive, it even detects really, really low levels is going to mean like, you know, what I, I just don't know in my mind, if I took Rivaroxaban two days ago, right, would my test result be expected to be positive at that level, you know, and, or, or I'm sorry, detectable or whatever in two days? Because 
clearly you're not at high bleeding risk 48 hours after taking it. So yeah, that's it's like a, there's it, a lot of nuance there. I think it's an excellent point. And I think much like, you know, some of these blood tests and everything, the useful value, because we actually don't know what a positive threshold is, that's why they tested across so many things, is going to be a zero value. Right. Well, for sure. Right. That, and that is going to be a large chunk of the patients. I think mm-hmm. that's sort of the point that now they didn't evaluate those right. patients. These patients were all taking them. But I think that that's going to be the point. There's going to be a large portion of these who actually have a zero value in their blood because they took it 12 hours ago or something like that. Well, if it's 14 I mean, hours I just ago. don't know what the expected value would be at 12 And those you'll hours. be able to add. That's the qualitative component. It's like if you were going to give them the reversal stuff anyway, and this thing's positive, okay, you're going to give it to them. But now if there's negative, you can pump the brakes. You're going to see the value on that side. Editor's commentary. In this prospective study, the authors evaluated a qualitative urine dipstick to detect DOAX with a turnaround time of 10 minutes and found it to have outstanding test characteristics for identifying ED patients with therapeutic levels of dabigatran and factor 10A inhibitors. If replicated in other populations by investigators without a conflict of interest, and if it's priced right, this could be a real game changer in the management of ED patients with emergent bleeding reportedly taking a DOAC. Abstract number 16, classification criteria and rates of persistent post-concussive symptoms in children, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Chadwick et al. in the Journal of Pediatrics. Concussion, also known as mild traumatic brain injury, is very common in the ED, and the CDC estimates that more than one or about 1 million children and adolescents visit the ED annually for mild traumatic brain injury. Most of the time, symptoms include headache, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, and resolve over the course of several days to a couple of weeks. However, a subset of children or adolescents have symptoms that persist beyond four weeks, which is often called persistent post-concussive syndrome, or sometimes just the post-concussive syndrome. And these symptoms of the post-concussive syndrome can include the same stuff for regular concussion symptoms like headache, etc., but commonly include neuropsychiatric symptoms like depression, cognitive impairment, and irritability as well. Estimates for the post-concussive syndrome in children vary tremendously in the literature from around 12% as a low for people with mild traumatic brain injury to a high of like 75%. Huge range. So the authors here do what good physician scientists do when there are point estimates all over the place. They perform a systematic review of meta-analysis to see if they can get a more precise estimate. And while they're at it, see if they can determine any estimates for particular patient populations. Are there variables that are associated with a higher or lower incidence? They identified after their search 14 studies meeting their entry criteria. Almost all of these studies were observational and they involved a total of 5,300 patients. The key finding was that 33% of subjects experienced persistent post-concussive syndrome at four weeks. Older age and female gender were found to be associated with an increased risk of persistent post-concussive syndrome. The big problem with this study is that almost half the patient, well, there's several problems, but one of them is that it came, about half the patients come from specialized headache clinics as opposed to the emergency department, which very likely biases the point estimate upward. It is important that the two biggest cohorts that entered this study were actually ED patients. So overall, when you do it pooled, it doesn't have that dramatic of effect, but it probably does bias it upward to some extent. 
Another important point is that the persistent post-concussive syndrome has been shown to have a very fickle definition. Minor changes in definition result in big changes in the estimates. And the different studies used different tools to define persistent post-concussive syndrome, which might account for the differences in point estimates and make pooling it all together quite problematic. If they're just using different definitions, adding it together and dividing by two doesn't help. The authors actually then have a nice part of the discussion that goes on to say that, you know, one of the issues, another issue really, is that we don't have any control groups in like any of these studies of kids who didn't get bonked on the head. So we don't know how much of this irritability and, you know, depression and being snapping is just adolescents being adolescents. Yeah, absolutely. Or they're just pissed because they had an injury. Like, is it different if they broke their finger? You know what I mean? Like, they don't like being sick. Okay, understood. You know, and they snap at their parents. So that's just not assessed at all. So, you know, all of these things are, are, are just kind of pretty interesting points. I don't know what to make of this. The, the last thing I guess I point out is a little dig at the study. It's not, it's not at the study, but as the, at the overall literature of this is there's a big difference between post-concussive syndrome at four weeks and at 12 weeks and at six months and things like that. And they just don't provide us any data on how many of these people persist beyond four weeks, which I think is, is still really important. If you told me it's going to be four weeks for an injury to heal, I think most of us would be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but if yeah. it's four years. Yeah. If it's going to be nine months, it's going to be a whole school year. That's, that's like something you really have to take into account and think through. So, you know, there's just a lot of stuff out there and that's just the state of the literature. I think, you know, the state of the art right now is for patients with post-concussive syndrome, or I'm sorry, with concussion who are at risk for post-concussive syndrome is probably to, you know, recommend some sub-threshold exercise to try to minimize it. They don't talk about that at all here. And that's been in and of itself very difficult to sort of sort out. But I think the take-home point for this study is pretty small. It's that the incidence of post-concussive syndrome is, is relatively high, we think, probably around a third at four weeks, and probably worse for older girls. So you really just can take that into account when you're advising patients about how closely to follow up and what an expected time course for um, recovery might be. Editor's commentary. This systematic review and meta-analysis shows that post-concussive syndrome occurs in about one-third of all head-injured children. The rate is higher among older adolescent girls. Physicians should keep this in mind when guiding parents and making follow-up recommendations. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Outcomes of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute K-12 Program in Emergency Care Research, seven-year follow-up by Morris et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. So this is a bit of a funky one. It's a little bit different, but I think it's worth including because it's also a moment to sort of be proud of our physician scientists and of our people working in academics and making some of these studies happen. So in an effort to increase the number of physician scientists, the NIH established two career development awards, the KO8 and the K23, which were done in the 90s, and these were followed by the addition of the K12, which is given to institutions rather than to individuals and can be used to target specialties that sort of need a catalyst. They need a jump start to get some research going and some physician scientists in that specialty. 
So the NHLBI K-12 program was the first large federal investment in emergency care research training, representing an almost $22 million investment in six sites across the U.S. So in the study, basically authors described the outcomes of scholars from this NHLBI K-12 and emergency care research about nine years after matriculation into the program, including continued participation in research, a comprehensive assessment of subsequent independent grant funding, and time to funding. And just for your knowledge, the six sites that were funded in 2011 by this program were the uh, Mount Sinai, Sinai, OHSU, UPenn, University of Pittsburgh, and Vanderbilt. In total, the program has supported 43 scholars, 37% female, 51% white, 42% emergency medicine, and 14% peds emergency medicine. So it wasn't, you know, just like emergency medicine people were, it was just emergency medicine topics. Right, we're trying to drive the, the, they're not trying to necessarily drive emergency physicians, they want to be emergency medicine. That's right. Yeah. As the goal of the program is to help clinician scientists become independent researchers and or obtain individual-level sustained funding, the authors basically focused on the receipt of federal funding. Over the follow-up period, 32 or 74%, so three-quarters, that's very good, received either an individual career development grant award or a research project grant with a median of 36 months till time to the award after entering the program, so three years. Of those 43 scholars, 23, just over half, received a career development award, 22 received a research project grant in the role of principal investigator. So some form of an R award. It's probably some form of an R award, but specifically seven of them were R01s, which is excellent. Of the 23 scholars who received a career development award, just over half of them subsequently had a research project grant funded. There was no difference in the success of grant funding by specialty training, so whether they were, you know, emergency medicine, critical care, cardiology, whatever it was, illustrating that the ability to compete for successful funding is not dependent on like the type of clinical training or sort of the old school mantra of like, oh, well, I have, you know, 10 mentors in cardiology who had an R01 and stuff. We aren't that well funded or as well funded historically, and we still competed very, very well compared to them. They had Kaplan-Meier curves they generated for women versus men to see how long it took to get funding in the K-12 cohort. And it looked like Women took longer to secure their funding than men at the beginning, and the the split is pretty big and pretty instantaneous, but by the end of the follow-up period, it's closed up. It's closed up to the gap, so it takes a little bit longer, and they have some thoughts about why that might be, but it's just another interesting finding that they pointed out. Now, they don't look at other metrics of academic success, like, you know, publications or serving on editorial boards or things like that, but that makes sense because the point of the K-12 is to serve as a stepping stone to future funding. And also, they don't have a control group in here, which you know might have been interesting to see just like run of the, if you didn't participate in this, how well you're doing based on mentorship, something else. But it would have been really hard to identify, I think, an appropriate control group and probably even harder to compare. But largely, this is just sort of a report on what happened. 
and seems like the money was well spent because we did very, very well. Editor's commentary. In this follow-up report on the 43 scholars from six academic institutions that were awarded the NHLBI K-12 program in emergency care research, three-quarters of the clinician scientists had obtained individual career development awards or research project grants in the role of principal investigator or both. These findings support the value of such programs and show that investments in emergency medicine and emergency medicine researchers really pay off. Kudos and thank you to all the mentors, scholars, and supporting institutions that contribute to the advancement of our field. Quick take. Abstract number 18, and this is a quick take. It's estimated number of COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and deaths prevented among vaccinated persons in the United States from between December 2020 and September 2021. It's by Steele et al. and Sinjama Network Open. I thought this would be a good paper to include in our databases. It gives a detailed mathematical accounting of how many infections, hospitalizations, and deaths the COVID vaccination prevented in the U.S. during that time frame. I stand by the decision to keep it in the database. I just wish Sanjay had had to cover this paper because the methods, they're rough. It's hard. It's You've really, had a few this month. No, no, but this one's like the opposite. It's oh, like, it's, it's too like, good. It's just, so, there's so much mathematical modeling oh, and referencing. You know, of you know what other, I do in those? I just gloss over it. <laughs> like my brain, my brain just glosses out. That's how yeah, my brain works. That's how those. your brain works on everything. Yeah, just like, oh, we took the model of the T to the square, the Kern Willis, the Kaplan Meyer. I'm just like, blah, blah, method's good. Blah. Word. I had um, an extra blah. And it's like, it's like they cite prior influenza studies and then you look into those methods. It's just, it gets, it's a lot. Anyway, so that's why it became a quick take. Cause I just, I mean, it's either a quick take the point or, is or gonna 45 be, minutes. The point is going to be pretty straightforward, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. So studies performed by the CDC using state level hospitalization, infection, and vaccination rates. And the authors back out how much COVID morbidity was mitigated through vaccination. They Again, they use this complex mathematical stuff that's mostly been done previously to estimate influenza disease burden from vaccination. So I just wanted to highlight that it's not something they invented to assess COVID vaccination success or lack thereof. It's something that's been used previously for many years. They, they have a lot of citations about that. So during the study period, again, December 2020 to September 2021, there were 3.3 million observed COVID hospitalizations, an estimated 69 million infections, and 431 deaths for COVID, from COVID during that time frame. Using estimates of vaccine efficacy and penetration, state-level, month-level vaccine penetration estimates, the authors conclude that the vaccination campaign avoided 27 million additional infections. 1.6 million additional hospitalizations, and 235,000 additional deaths. That's a whoppingly high number. And just to put it in perspective, about 200,000 people in America die from all forms of unintentional injury in a year, right? Or converse, another one is only 160,000 people die from stroke in America in a year. So that's th there are three things that make these numbers, this 235,000, really incredible. The first is that the estimates are from December 20 through September 21. That's way less than a year. Second, this is basically entirely pre-Delta Wave. And Delta Wave is when we really got walloped and we had an enormous number of, uh, of deaths. And so presumably, 
a lot of deaths avoided as well. And third, these are the actual estimates based on relatively weak uptake in the United States during those first several months, right? For several of those months, the large majority of people weren't even eligible, and only in the later months did they become eligible. So this is not an estimate of who could have been saved if everybody had been you know, vaccinated promptly or if the rollout had been smoother and more uniform across the country. This is like actual vaccination, actual deaths averted. So in case you didn't know, COVID vaccination works. You heard it here first. Edit this commentary. This complex modeling study out of the CDC estimates that the initial pre-Delta wave vaccination program prevented 27 million COVID infections, 1.6 million COVID hospitalizations, and 235,000 COVID deaths. Abstract number 19. Translator use not associated with longer time to pain medication in the initial evaluation of low-severity geriatric trauma This is by Gong et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Limited English language proficiency has been associated with less access to care, worse health outcomes, and increased length of stay, and the ED specifically, limited English language proficiency has been associated with increased testing as well as increased admission rates. In this study, the authors try to add to the evidence base on this topic by focusing their attention on elderly trauma patients and the relationship between preferred language and type of pain medication received, as well as the number of imaging studies. This is a retrospective analysis of all low-severity trauma cases from a single ED in New York. They included hemodynamically stable patients over age 65 with a minor mechanism, ISS less than 15, head or torso injury that was on at least one medication that was thought to be an anticoagulant, an antiplatelet, or a chemotherapeutic. And this is a little weird to me that they wanted to include just people on those medications. They said they thought it would increase the risk of intracranial hemorrhage or something like that, but it was one of the first things in this paper I didn't understand, and that list is a pretty long list. They conducted an automated structured chart review from what sounds kind of like actually a trauma registry, even though they were sort of low acuity, with a decent description of the methods, at least for how the automated part of it worked, and a primary outcome of timed pain medication. So of 734 patients with a documented preferred language who also received pain medication, 460 preferred to communicate in English, 84 in Mandarin Chinese, 64 in Spanish, 37 in Cantonese Chinese, 35 in Korean, and 29 in Russian. Although there were no statistically significant differences in time to pain medication, which is basically the top line finding here, the between group differences are actually pretty large when you look at the table, with the English and Cantonese speakers being the only ones to get their first dose of pain medications on average in less than an hour. For example, Korean speakers were closer to 80 minutes. So, you know, at least from my eyeball, it looks like there's a bit of a difference. Across all patients, the most common medication administered was acetaminophen in 71% of cases. And all patients in every language group received the exact same average number of studies at five. Uh, Average number of? Radiologic studies at five. Oh, radiologic studies, sorry, gotcha. So... 
I'm going to stop there with the paper and just kind of say, although I definitely admire the effort behind this paper, because I do think it's tackling an important topic, right? Patients with limited English proficiency deserve special attention, but there are way, way too many flaws in this paper that essentially undermine everything that they found. And I'm just going to list out a few of them just so you can at least learn if you go look at this paper, kind of, you know, what a critical eye would think. They had no attempt to validate that the documented preferred language was accurate. You know, that it wasn't just like, well, I'm putting English for 50% of the people on a given day, and they didn't check to see anywhere if that was true. They excluded a massive number of patients in whom no language was documented, more than that were actually reported on, I believe, right? And this is incredibly problematic because it's very possible that maybe the people who could say the language they spoke, whatever, also spoke a little English and could speak to the, you know, the, per- the registration person, whereas the people who couldn't speak a single word of English were all somehow systematically excluded in their identification strategy. And maybe if you looked at those people, they never got pain meds or had forever to get pain meds or had a million different imaging studies. So that's actually a really important cohort, which we don't see here at all. There's no comment on, this is maybe a minor one, on kind of sort of common languages that might be spoken by staff in the ED. You know, like where we work, If somebody speaks Spanish, there's always a Spanish speaker around, in-person Spanish translation available readily. I can't exclude the possibility that all patients who fall into this minor trauma activation are actually managed similarly by some protocol, like they're just some checklist. They all get this scan. Besides all this, you kind of like the study. (laughs) But I just let me at least get to the last one, because this has got to be the kicker. For me, it's like the last paper of the month, and this is the most hilarious thing at all. Nowhere in the paper, not a single time, is there a mention of translator use or anything about translator use. Because that's why we selected it. The, The title is Translator Use is Not Associated with Longer Time to Pain Medication. And nowhere in here do they talk about the use of a translator. That is pretty impressive. That's how you do it. Wow. Nice. I'm glad we waited for that. You know, sometimes you save the best for last. This was not one of those times. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective analysis of elderly patients with a minor trauma activation, the authors did not find an impact of preferred language on time to pain medication or use of imaging but I think there are just way, way too many flaws, including exclusion of large groups of patients who may have had a significant impact on the outcome to believe their findings. In general, I would use a translator when a patient speaks a different language. This is the best and really the only way for us to maximize high quality of care for all of our patients. Abstract number 20, online learning versus hands-on learning of basic ocular ultrasound skills, a randomized controlled non-inferiority trial. This is by Kang et al. And it's in the journal Medicina, which is out of Conus, Lithuania. I think you made that up. (laughs) I'm a fan of ocular pocus for diagnostic reasons, mainly because, as I stated in our earlier paper, it's just hard to get an ophthalmology consult in community medicine. So, you know, it's hard for, to get somebody to help you out to figure out which of those patients with new floaters 
are having relatively benign vitreous detachment versus those who are having like a Macon retinal detachment. The literature overall suggests that POCUS in the hands of emergency physicians is very accurate for this indication, though there's still some controversy there. Of course, teaching all us old dogs new tricks like ocular ultrasound is no small task. Traditionally, you've got to go to a conference where you've got ultrasonographers who set up a whole thing and you get models and everything else out there. And it's a, it's a big endeavor. You know, I'm not saying it's impossible. Lots of people do it, but it requires, you know, a lot of dedicated time, et cetera, that most of us, you know, may not have sure, in sure, abundant supply. Sure would be nice if I could learn skills from the comfort of my own That's right. home. So the, the authors here ask this important question of whether or not you can just teach it online and have similar results. And they basically, in their sort of setup, it's not really in my notes, but this is all about the pandemic, right? They're like, it was hard to get people in the same room when the pandemic occurred. So we, we were sort of compelled to see if we could figure out a way to do this online versus in person. On its face, it seems a little nutty, right? The procedure has tactile components. It has knobs that you got to turn. So you'd think it might be impractical to teach online. And that might be true, but the authors note that that could be counterbalanced by the fact that when you're learning online, you can do it sort of when you feel like learning. You know, you go to a thing and you're tired or whatever and you miss everything and then you can't go backwards and all this stuff. So maybe, you know, those two things offset one another and you end up with similar or better results. In the study, the authors randomized 32 residents and interns to receive online versus hands-on training for ultrasound. They then assessed them in three domains. First was the quality of the ocular ultrasound images obtained on standardized patients. Second was a knowledge questionnaire about ocular ultrasound. And third was basically self-assessed proficiency. They repeated the assessment two weeks post-training. So they did it right after the training and then two weeks post-training to assess for any difference in retention skills between the groups. The raters, so the people record, you know, dictating whether the ultrasound quality was good or bad, were blinded to the training strategy that the individual received. The training consisted of a 20-minute, 20 20-minute 20 online module or 30 minutes hands-on course. So pretty quick. In terms of findings, the authors show that everything was same-same between the groups at both time points, with the exception of satisfaction with the experience, which was favored by the hands-on group. But in terms of image quality acquisition, you know, their, their knowledge, it was the same, same, both immediately and at two weeks. So they conclude that online training is as effective as the hands-on session, which is good news for those of us here who do not have ready access to ultrasound experts to perform hands-on training. But the study's pretty limited. The assessment of ocular ultrasound quality was not well described, and the standardized patients that they did it on did not actually have any pathology. So it's not certain at all that the results would be the same if you were assessing a patient that were symptomatic or something like that. Also, the authors note that the majority of subjects had not used ocular ultrasound before. And they sort of use this to argue that it's good for the novice learner. But the truth is, it's likely or even probable that these residents had a fair amount of experience with POCUS for other indications right? And possibly using the same machines that make online education a lot more effective than if you really just like, it's a totally different machine. The knobology is totally different, et cetera. So that probably has a pretty substantial role to play. Finally, 
this really only shows us that like really novice stuff is equal across the two ways online versus, you know, this other way. I mean, it's a 20 minute versus a 30 minute course. It doesn't speak at all to proficiency, which is really vital. So it may be that the first 30 minutes of ultrasound training can be done either way. It doesn't really matter. But when you're talking about becoming proficient at making important diagnoses, this paper just can't comment about it at all. So it's quite limited as far as that goes. Still, even though it's pretty limited, I think the general point is probably right. If you want to learn about ocular ultrasound and you don't know much or anything at all, it's probably reasonable to start with some online resources and get you know familiar with the, what the images look like, what you're generally looking for. And whether this learning online is enough to eventually make someone proficient, that's still just a very open question. Editor's commentary. This is a small trial that randomized residents to a short online course teaching ocular ultrasound or a similar short hands-on course. The key findings were that image quality obtained between the two was similar after the training and at two weeks. Despite the small scale and other limitations, this suggests that online training might be a good way to start to learn about ocular ultrasound. Welcome, listeners, to the November 2022 EMA Ultra Summary. I'm Jenny Beckesme. I'm here, as always, with Jess Bonus. Hello, Jess. Hello, Jenny. How are you? I am doing great. You know what? It is right now it's September, obviously, but let's pretend it's November and like the leaves have turned. Maybe they're falling. We're getting ready for Thanksgiving. It's a really fun time of year. Yeah, it's really nice. I'll be in Arizona. So for me, the weather will be perfect. <laughs> It'll be the exact same as it was a few months ago. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> for the listeners, I'm not sure if we've given them a little bit of a check-in on how you're doing. Can we just give them a check-in on how you're doing? Sure. Check-in is I'm doing pretty well. I finished my radiation and I got a little bit of a, you know, radiation dermatitis going on. That's been okay. a little, little challenging, but that stinks. Yeah, getting through it. And I started oral chemo, so I've got to do that for six months. But overall, I think I'm doing well in a good place. Okay, good. Good, good, good. I'd love to hear that. And I'm sure the listeners do too. We have 20 great papers here. Should we jump in? Yeah, let's do it. You want to start us? I'll do it. Paper number one, immobilization with an S of torus fractures of the wrist in children. So this is the Forearm Fracture Recovery in Children Evaluation, or FORCE, trial, which was a multi-center randomized controlled equivalence trial that was at 23 EDs in the UK. Kids age 4 to 15 with imaging that showed an acute torus fracture of the distal radius, or buccal fracture, were randomized to either rigid immobilization, so that was done with either a rigid splint or a plaster cast, and most of the kids just got a removable plastic splint, or to getting just a soft gauze bandage. The primary outcome was pain at three days, and secondary outcomes included things like pain at other time points, functional recovery, quality of life, analgesia use, missed school days, complications, and then overall satisfaction. They found that pain scores, which is important, were equivalent in both intention to treat and per protocol analysis at the time points they looked at. 
all of the time points they looked at. And in both of the two different age groups they looked at, which was basically the younger versus the older kids. There was also no difference in functional recovery, health-related quality of life, complications, or missed days of school. So this is a good study showing equivalency between these two treatment options. And one option, to me at least, is much less time-consuming for the clinician and also less cumbersome for the family to deal with. Use shared decision-making with the parents, and this might allow you to, you know, maybe make things easier for both you and the family. Give them a removable plastic splint or a gauze bandage. It seems just fine. Paper number two. Derivation and validation of a four-level clinical pretest probability score for PEPs for suspected pulmonary embolism to safely decrease imaging testing. The authors of the study derived and both internally and externally validated this score using existing data sets. The score uses 12 of the typical PE variables, which you can Google or check out on MDCalc. The scores range from negative 4 to 22. Less than 0 is very low risk, where no D-dimer is needed. Greater than 13 is high risk, and you jump straight to imaging. 0 to 5 is low probability, and PE can be ruled out if the D-dimer is less than 1,000. And for the moderate group, you can age adjust it. They compared the score to other ones and found that the false negative rate of 0.7 to 0.9% was a little bit higher, but it would have spared about 20% of the CTPAs. Seems promising, but this score needs additional external validation prior to use. Okay, love that. I mean, PE is, continues to be a challenge for all of us in emergency medicine, so a new score that might be better than our old scores? I'm in. Paper number three, non-sterile gloves and dressing versus sterile gloves, dressings, and drapes for suturing of traumatic wounds in the emergency department. This is a multi-center, single-blinded, randomized, controlled, non-inferiority trial looking at the use of non-sterile gloves and dressings versus sterile gloves, dressings, and drapes. They excluded patients with complicated wounds, those who presented at more than 24 hours after injury, and those with signs of infection at the time of presentation, which of course seems reasonable. They found a wound infection rate of 6.8% in the sterile group and 5.7%, so less, in the non-sterile group. Now, unfortunately, they didn't actually enroll enough patients to properly power the study, but this would suggest that there really isn't much benefit in all of that sterile procedure that we are often using in these lac repairs. You know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of what we do is, you know, for show for the patient, right? You listen 100%. to the percent. It's like, yep. Yep, can yep, we yep, really yep. hear anything? Come on, right? Oh, there's your heart. It's beating, you know? So I feel like, you know, the putting on of the gloves, the draping of the, you know, the wound. It's like the show that a patient comes to expect. So I do wonder how a patient would feel if you're just like, you know, like, all right, let's go. Here we are. So let's slap this together. <laughs> slap yeah. this together. Exactly. But yeah, uh, that's all true. All, you know, I, I get it. So basically what you're saying is like, don't spit on the wound, you know, don't spit on your gloves and you'll be fine. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all this, of course, comes down to cost. You know, all of those supplies have a cost. And environmental impact, which I don't think we often think about that much in the ER, like all of those things that we're opening and disposing of, you know, so if we don't have to do it, it's probably better. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Paper four. 
Comparison of an emoji-based visual analog scale with a numeric rating scale for pain assessment. The overall agreement between the two scales was high. The emojis chosen are very similar to the Wong Baker faces, but as the authors point out, unlike Wong Baker, emojis are open source and easily applicable to digital platforms. Personally, I'm into it. We use emojis every day in our routine text and emails, so why not in medicine? Yeah, sure. I mean, these are faces that the audience is going to be more familiar with, right? So let's use them. Right. And, I, you know, it's funny because it's like sometimes, you know, I'm so used to typing things and I always put an emoji. I'm like, face palm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> face yeah. palm is my favorite. <laughs> right. LOL. So- I use a little blonde one with a purple shirt and her face, her hand is over <laughs> her face. It's like it's the exactly. most used emoji for me. Right. Number five, efficacy of benzodiazepines or antihistamines for patients with acute vertigo, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This CIRMA, systematic review and meta-analysis, looks at the relative efficacy of benzos and antihistamines when compared with each other, compared with other active comparators, placebo or no intervention in the treatment of acute vertigo from any underlying cause. They ended up with 17 papers and a total of around 1,500-1,600 patients. Single-dose antihistamines outperformed single-dose benzos with a 16-point reduction in the vertigo symptoms on the 100-point VAS two hours post-treatment. But antihistamines did not outperform other active comparators, including ondansetron, droperidol, and metoclopramide. Now, most of the studies were small, and there was a lot of heterogeneity, and many of the studies were really old. So we may need some updated studies on these therapies. For more on vertigo, check out the MRAP 2018 April segment on vertigo clarification. You know, Jenny, my dog, I've got this cute little labradoodle. He's 13 years old. And mm. um, not too long ago, he woke up in the middle of the night, and he sleeps in my bed, and he, I kept hearing him fall over. And yeah, I got really nervous and he he developed horrific vertigo, could not, you know, could not walk, could not stand up. And I was like, oh, this is really bad. He either had like a stroke or so we actually right. took him to the doggy ED and, you know, they they checked him out and you know, there wasn't that much that they can really do, but they ended up sending him home with doggy Valium. Oh. So, you know, so I find it interesting, this paper, because they probably could have chose something else. But, right, um, like my doggy Benadryl instead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know what? The, the good news is that he's actually much improved. So whatever, whatever it was, he rehabbed and he's like pretty much back to himself. So Little labyrinthitis or BPPV or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, poor guy. I know. All right. Paper six, excluding hollow viscous injury for abdominal seatbelt sign using computed tomography. Historically, a seatbelt sign buys you a CT and an observation stay regardless of the imaging results. This was based on prior studies demonstrating that 15 to 64% of patients with seatbelt signs had hollow viscous injuries and imaging could miss them. These were older studies, so what about in the setting of modern multi-slice CTs? Out of the 754 patients across nine trauma centers in this study, only one patient of the 69 with hollow viscous injuries was missed on CT. I am putting missed in quotes because the patient had a pericolonic hematoma, so far from negative. 
The bottom line is that the risk of missing a hollow viscous injury on our current CT scanners is extraordinarily low, and this probably warrants a change in our practice. I agree. I mean, that sounds good. CT scanners have gotten better and better. We need to kind of adjust our practice to account for that. Right. Paper number seven, one-year outcome trajectories and factors associated with functional recovery among survivors of intracerebral and intraventricular hemorrhage with initial severe disability. These authors performed a post-hoc longitudinal analysis of prospectively collected data from two trials that included about 1,000 patients with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhages in order to give us one-year outcome data for these patients who had non-traumatic intracerebral or intraventricular hemorrhages. And they also definitely had to have poor initial functional status so we could see how things changed. So by day 30, almost 12% of patients had died. Almost 15%, though, had good neurologic function. And then the remaining 70% or so had poor neurologic function. Between day 31 and the one-year mark, 18% of patients had died and 43% had achieved good neurologic function. Pretty good. In their multivariable regression model, they found that diabetes, NIH stroke scale, severe leukoareosis, which is a particular change in the appearance of the white matter near the lateral ventricles on imaging, pineal gland shift, acute ischemic stroke, gastrostomy, and persistent hydrocephalus by day 30 were all associated with a lack of recovery. The original trials that the data was taken from had very, very strict inclusion criteria, which probably limits the generalizability of this data to like all comers in the emergency department. But a lot of the patients did much better than I would have thought here. You know, 43% had achieved good neurologic function by a year. So maybe that should give us some cause for hope. All right. Hope is always good. Hope is good. Paper number eight. Thrombectomy alone versus intravenous alteplase plus thrombectomy in patients with stroke, an open-label, blinded outcome, randomized, non-inferiority trial. This is one of two studies published in The Lancet on this topic for the month, both with the same conclusion. Patients with a large vessel occlusion stroke were randomly assigned to receive either thrombectomy or thrombectomy plus IVTPA. They found that a modified Rankin score of 0 to 2, meaning at most a slight disability, was achieved by 57% of the thrombectomy alone group and 65% of the thrombectomy plus TPA group. Successful reperfusion was 5% higher in the TPA group, but they also had 1% more intracranial hemorrhages. Overall, thrombectomy alone was not shown to be non-inferior. The other paper demonstrated similar findings, so for now, Continue with the TPA. I wish that wasn't the response. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, other studies were like, you know, more promising, but not this one. All right. Paper number nine, awareness with paralysis among critically ill emergency department patients, a prospective cohort study. In May 2021, we covered the ED awareness study, which showed that 2.6% of patients on ventilators in the ED remembered being awake and paralyzed, and those patients had a higher degree of perceived threat. This is a follow-up study by the same author group, and it's an a priori planned secondary analysis of a multicenter prospective before and after clinical trial. They looked at just under 400 adults, 
who were intubated in the emergency department and who received a neuromuscular blocker. Patient awareness with paralysis was independently determined by three expert reviewers who examined patient responses to a questionnaire, qualitative reports of patient experiences, and some pertinent clinical information. They found 3.4% of patients were deemed to have awareness with paralysis, even worse than the last paper. And again, they found that patients who had awareness with paralysis had a higher perceived level of threat than those who did not, because of course they did. Being awake and paralyzed sounds horrendous. 3.4% is clearly unacceptably high. This paper should be a stark reminder that we must remember our post-intubation sedation. And for all those QI folks out there, coming up with some departmental or specialty-wide approaches to improving post-intubation care may be in order. Yeah, this is a nightmare. This is like Like a a nightmare. And never should happen, right? This is a never should happen incident. This is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Paper 10. Incidents and risk factors of overcorrection in patients presenting with severe hyponatremia to the emergency department. We all fear osmotic demyelination syndrome, aka the old central pontine myelinolysis. This single-center study found that over a two-year period, 50 patients were admitted with a sodium less than 125. 12% of them were overcorrected, so had their sodium increased by more than 10 in a 24-hour period. No cases of demyelination. The authors found that risk factors for overcorrection were symptomatic hyponatremia and 3% saline use. As a reminder, the SALSA trial we reviewed in February of 2021 found that a rapid intermittent bolus was as effective as a slow continuous infusion of 3% saline and likely safer. For more on this topic, listen to MRAP's hyponatremia fuss from June of this year. I mean, not only likely safer, easier, right? Yeah, like it's just easier. easier to give these little boluses than try and set up a whole drip of this thing that everyone has only done a few times and the nurses are freaked out, right? Right. It's definitely like, you know, if you're going to set it and forget it, it better be a no. bolus and not a continuous infusion. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Paper number 11, outcomes of patients discharged from the PEDS emergency department with abnormal vital signs. This study wanted to determine if having abnormal vital signs at the time of discharge was associated with an increased rate of return visits, admission, or adverse events within 48 hours for pediatric patients. We obsess about abnormal vital signs in the adult ED. I mean, my residents will attest to my obsession. (laughs) I'm the same. Because we know that this is associated with adverse events and worse outcomes, but is this true in PEDS? This is a retrospective study of all children discharged from two academic centers. Vital sign abnormalities were defined as heart rate, respiratory rate, or blood pressure outside of the 5th and 95th percentiles for age, O2 sat less than 95%, and temp less than 97 Fahrenheit or above 100.4 Fahrenheit. They looked at 98,000 patients, and 83,000 of those kids were discharged home. Of those discharges, 21% had at least one abnormal vital sign, which, pause there, just goes to show that in peds, they are not obsessing about these vital sign numbers like we are doing in adults. I mean, maybe a lot of those are, you know, persistent fevers, but still, we're obsessing about this a lot more on the adult side than they are on peds, for sure. 
So within 48 hours, 2.26% of the patients with an abnormal vital sign had a return ED visit versus 2.45% of patients who had totally normal vital signs. Obviously pretty similar. They did some statistical analysis and determined that risk factors for return visit were having more than one abnormal vital sign, age less than three, and high initial acuity level. The methods in this paper aren't the best, but I think this should reassure you that if a kid looks great, probably don't obsess over fixing vital sign numbers. But perhaps do keep in mind that having more than one abnormal vital sign may put the kid at slightly higher risk of return. So if you're discharging, be extra thorough in your return precautions. Right. And you know, my thing, I'm, I'm, I'm similar. I'm a vital sign person. I'm like, when their heart rate is under 100 and their blood pressure is over 100, let me know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> People are going to bounce back and you never know who is going to be the one to do it. Yeah. And so the last thing you need is to be asked, why did you discharge this person super hypotensive or with the super tachycardic rate? Exactly. I mean, for multiple reasons, right? For, for just obviously patient care reasons, but you can't overlook the medical legal, right? I mean, I know. It's you're, like it's sitting on, you're sitting in your deposition there. and the lawyer says, but doctor, is 120 heart rate <laughs> right. a normal heart rate? And you say, no. I mean, right. And that's the thing. Like with kids, it's hard, right? Because you walk in the room, they start wailing. You know what I right. mean? And I'm like, right, right, right. stick the thing on, walk out of the room, open the drapes, write down the number. You know what I mean? Like this <laughs> yeah. kid looks like a peach. They've looked like a peach the whole time. Like I don't want the final vital sign to look like a nightmare when that's not what the kid is. Right, like, right, right. Make right, it right. accurately represent the child. That's... Well, and the other thing with kids is the fever, right? I mean, right. fever, do you really get, are you really going to give the acetaminophen and then make them wait around for it to work for the fever to go down before they go away for their very normal looking URI? I mean, come on. Right. And the thing is, I think the important thing is just document, right? Kid mm -hmm, looks mm -hmm. well, playful mm -hmm. with parents, smiling, Tolerating happy. PO exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The big yeah. picture. Yeah. Yeah. We belabored that for a while. Go on to paper 12. <laughs> paper 12. <laughs> Love kids. All right. Paper 12. Clinical diagnosis of cholecystitis in emergency department patients with cholelithiasis is indication for urgent cholecystectomy a comparison of clinical, ultrasound, and pathologic diagnosis. The authors of the study want to know if you can trust radiology's ultrasound to detect cholecystitis. They reviewed about 380 patients with gallstones and right upper quadrant pain who underwent a cholecystectomy, and they believe the answer is no. For the ultrasound to have been considered positive, it had to have two of the following findings, gallbladder wall thickening, pericholecystic fluid, and a positive Murphy sign. They found the sensitivity to be an abysmal 44% for acute cholecystitis, but other studies have demonstrated higher sensitivities closer to 80%. It's not surprising that their numbers are so low given their strict definition of a positive scan. A ton of pericholecystic fluid in the setting of gallstones is a positive scan in my book, but not for these guys. Regardless, this is a good reminder that if your clinical suspicion is high, involve your surgical colleagues regardless of the ultrasound results. Absolutely. And I mean, that goes for any disease process, right? Yeah. Paper number 13, analysis of outcomes associated with outpatient management of non-operatively treated patients with appendicitis. 
So this is like throwback month because I think this is the third time we're throwing back. This is again, back in February 2021, we covered the CODA trial, which showed that antibiotics were non-inferior to appendectomy for the treatment of appendicitis. But as we mentioned back then, this doesn't really mean much to us in the ED because we aren't making the final treatment decision. We're consulting our surgical colleagues, of course, for that. This is a secondary analysis of the patients in the CODA trial that were randomized to that antibiotic group. They had several goals of the study, but maybe most important for us was that they were looking at patients who were treated with antibiotics, who were discharged in either under 24 hours, we'll call those outpatients, and those who were discharged after 24 hours, let's call those inpatients. The adverse event rate at one week was similar between the two groups, 0.9% for outpatients, 1.1% for inpatients. Appendectomy was ultimately performed for 10% of the outpatients versus 14% of the inpatients. This may be a starting point for us down a path where we're going to be giving antibiotics and discharging from the ED. But the main limitation of this paper is that the time to discharge wasn't randomized. So patients who were doing great may have left earlier and sicker patients kept longer. And of course, that would just make sense. If I had to guess, We're probably going to be seeing more papers on this in the future, and I look forward to reading them. All right, paper 14. South Texas Orbital Fracture Protocol, STOP, for Emergency Department Evaluation of Orbital Fractures. Which patient with orbital fractures require emergent ophthalmology consultation? If you had an orbital fracture and any of the following, you would get a consult with STOP. All PEDS, patients with decreased vision or diplopia, radiologic findings of an open globe retrobulbar hematoma entrapment or root fracture, or the presence of a lid-lack pupillary defect, motility defect, corneal abrasion hyphema, or oculocardiac reflex. The authors claim that by implementing STOP, the consult rate would decrease by a whopping 50%. Sounds too good to be true. Probably because it is. First of all, They derived the tool and then applied it to the same population, which always exaggerates the results. Secondly, at their hospital, all patients with any orbital fractures receive an optho-consult, so of course their rate would be decreased. Not so much at other institutions who don't consult optho for every single one. Overall, not practice changing. Paper 15, Performance of Qualitative Point-of-Care Strip Test to Detect DOAC Exposure at the Emergency Department, a Cohort-Type Cross-Sectional Diagnostic Accuracy Study. The DOAC dipstick is a urine qualitative strip test intended to detect the presence of DOACs in human urine, and it takes only 10 minutes to perform. This could be a game changer for patients on DOACs or who you think might be on DOACs who come to the ED with bleeding. Instead of giving reversal agents, which might be expensive or hard to come by, to any patient on a DOAC, we could test the patient's urine, and 10 minutes later, we know for sure if they need the reversal. This is a prospective study from a single emergency department. They enrolled adult patients with direct oral thrombin inhibitors, so dabigatran, or factor 10A inhibitors, so rivaroxaban, apixaban, edoxaban, and they determined that use based on a medical history and the patient had to be able to provide a urine sample. All of the patients enrolled also had their DOAC blood levels sent as a gold standard. The long and the short of it is that the test strip worked great. 
I'm going to actually give you the numbers here to impress you. So it identified dabigatran plasma levels with 100% sensitivity and 98% specificity. They had no false negative results and the false positive result was only 2%. So the PPV, positive predictive value, was 84% and the negative predictive value was 100%. When it came to the factor 10A inhibitors, it wasn't quite as good, but it was still pretty good. Sensitivity, 97%. Specificity, 69%. The false positive rate was 31. The false negative rate was 3%. Positive predictive value, 90%. Negative predictive value, 91%. These are really good numbers. These are really good numbers. So this is only a small study, but if it gets replicated and these TEP strips are cheap enough, they're going to be coming to an ED near you. Absolutely. And you know what? This would be great for oh, stroke, so great. right? I mean, so great. like your nonverbal stroke patient with no history, like this would yes. be perfect. Perfect. And also even for a patient who's taking a DOAC or it's on their med list and you don't know, these medications have variable half-lives, you know, so it's not like they're on it and their blood is definitely a problem, right? You, you want to really know what their level is so you know whether you have to give them meds. This, is, this could be a game changer. Absolutely. The funny part is that whenever you, you, know, you said it and you were like, you got to get it from the urine, and I'm thinking, ugh, like urine is always the limiting step. Oh, right. That's true. Now, the question will be, can you take the blood and put it on the urine tester like you can a UPREG? <laughs> That's going to be a real game changer. Exactly. All right, paper 16, classification criteria and rates of persistent post-concussive symptoms in children, a systematic review and meta-analysis. A proportion of children with mild traumatic brain injuries will go on to have persistent post-concussive symptoms, but how many? This SIRMA looked at 13 studies and found <laughs> that about one-third of kids went on to have persistent symptoms lasting more than four weeks. The prevalence was higher in females and adolescents. And it's sad because persistent post-concussive symptoms are associated with declines in academic performance and quality of life. Just a good reminder to avoid high-risk activities if possible and always push for helmets. For a refresher on concussions, listen to the MRAP segment from March of 2021. Paper 17, Outcomes of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute K-12 Program in Emergency Care Research 7-Year Follow-Up. The NHLBI K-12 program was the first large federal investment in emergency research training with the goal of the training being to develop independent researchers. $21.6 million was invested in six sites across the U.S. These authors here describe the outcomes for these scholars at up to eight and a half years. In total, the program supported 43 scholars. 37% of these were female. 51% were white. 42% were EM, and 14% were PEDS EM. Within the follow-up period, three quarters had received either an individual career development award or research project grant within a median of 36 months after entering the program. The paper breaks down into further detail the roles and the types of funding that the scholars received, and Sandre will go into that in more detail in the full segment. But the general gist is that this really seemed to work. Continuing to invest in these programs will probably pay off both for our specialty and our patients. So keep up the good work, researchers. <laughs> nice, yeah. Paper 18. Estimated number of COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and deaths prevented among vaccinated persons in the U.S. December 2020 
to September 2021. Jenny, does COVID vaccination work? Um, <laughs> I wonder how this will pan out. I'm sure the suspense will be killing you. Okay. In this modeling study, COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and deaths were extrapolated from existing data in the U.S. over the 10-month period when the vaccine just came out. It was found to have prevented 27 million infections, 1.6 million hospitalizations, and 235,000 deaths. Not too bad. So to answer the initial question, yes, vaccination does work. And since COVID is currently the number three leading cause of death in the U.S., thank you to everyone that got the shot. Oh, thank you. And actually, I'm very excited because I am due for my booster and I'm going to make that happen ASAP. Me too. Yes. Paper 19. Translator use not associated with longer time to pain medication in initial evaluation of low-severity geriatric trauma. Now, you want this to be the Rick Bucata Award, right? (laughs) Stay tuned. Stay tuned. We know from previous studies that limited English proficiency has been associated with less access to care, worse health outcomes, increased testing, increased admission rates, and increased length of stay. These authors performed a retrospective chart review of low-severity geriatric trauma patients, analyzing the relationship between their preferred language and the type of medication and the number of imaging studies they received. They did not find a statistically significant association between preferred language and the time to meds, fraction of opioids used, and the number of studies performed. But unfortunately, there's a lot of problems with the study, and Sanjay dives into them in detail. But the biggest one you know, for Rick Bucata, at least, is that there isn't a mention of translator use at all. (laughs) And that's in the title of the study. So love the effort, important topic, but maybe not the paper to kind of move the needle. But, but, (laughs) but on this subject, use your interpreters, use your translators, because did you know that as healthcare practitioners, we not only have an ethical obligation, but also a legal one based on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act to provide language assistance to limited English proficiency patients? You might not have known that. I don't know the law. I'm not a lawyer. But I'm assuming that your medical malpractice doesn't cover a Civil Rights Act violation. So, you know, use your interpreters. Use it because it's right for your patient. And it's also, you know, probably the legally sound thing to do. Okay. So are we saying this is like the anti-Bucata award? It's like the anti-Bucata award. So so I think we should say like the anti-Bucata award is when you make a title that does not correlate to your paper. (laughs) Right. Yes. This is, yes. This paper gets the anti-Bucata award. Nailed it. Nailed it. All right, paper 20, online learning versus hands-on learning of basic ocular ultrasound skills, a randomized control non-inferiority trial. Without an opto consult, ultrasound is probably the best way for us to identify a retinal detachment. So what's the best way to learn it? This study compared hands-on learning of ocular point-of-care ultrasound with a standardized patient to online learning with training materials and video clips. Turns out, Online learning was not inferior to hands-on education, although participants liked in-person more. If you want to brush up on your ocular ultrasound, 
You can watch the MRAP HD video on POCUS for retinal detachment. Apparently, this will work as well as if someone teaches it to you in real life. Yay! That's great to <laughs> have that proven to us. Great. And that wraps up the ultra summary for November 2022. Have a great month. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. Jenny, I look forward to talking to you next month and all of our listeners. Thank you. It's time to talk a little nerdy. Talk a little nerdy with Ken Milne. Hello and welcome to another edition of Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. This is another special edition of Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. You know, back in September, we had Dr. Chris Carpenter on as a guest skeptic discussing the new GRACE guidelines from the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine. Well, this month, November, we have Dr. Ryan Radecki, who is an EM physician and also a board certified in clinical informatics. Welcome to the show, Ryan. An honor and a pleasure to be here with my most skeptical friend. <laughs> well, I know that you were trained and you did practice in the U.S., but now you're working in New Zealand. Do you want to provide any high-level observations since moving to a different healthcare system? Well, I imagine it's, it's quite like Canada, but on an island in the Pacific. We have a public healthcare system doing its level best to provide care to everyone that needs it, succeeding 99% of the time and struggling on the edges. But at the least, it's missing out on a lot of the moral injury and the financial incentives corrupting the United States system. Well, we're not here to talk about socialized medicine versus for-profit medicine. That's not the focus of this show. Today, we want to do a dive into clinical informatics or digital health and discuss machine learning. So let's start with, hey, Ryan, what the heck is machine learning and where did it come from? So machine learning is a method for generating statistical models out of another hot item of which you might be familiar, big data. In contrast to small data, the kind of data we're used to looking at when we do our little quality assurance projects or read clinical trial results is easily digestible by our actual brains, and the basic statistical techniques finding associations makes sense. This is great for doing simple analyses or for building out the simple prediction instruments we use in practice all the time. Things from PCARN or Nexus or the pulmonary embolism rule-like criteria. As great as these are, they are also kind of crude tools. They have just a handful of variables and usually divide patients into just a couple buckets of risk levels. Useful because they're aligned with the clinical decisions we need to make, CT or no CT, but not very sophisticated. So what does this big data, that small data, can't provide? So... Machine learning techniques on this big data use a whole variety of different approaches to find complex patterns and associations. As bland as it sounds, the big part of big data is exactly that, not just in terms of numbers of patients, but also the ability to even look at larger numbers of variables to be able to explore any association with an outcome of interest. From Outside, this invariably looks like an opaque, magical black box from whence predictions are made. The key to understanding, however, is that these techniques do a marvelous job of finding interrelated associations and collinearity within the data, sometimes almost human-like insights and context synthesis. 
This allows these machine learning techniques to do things like build clusters of similar patients or make complex decision trees with different variable weights and make predictions based on these associations in a powerful way not typically amenable to traditional statistical methods. This works really well when you have a large heterogeneous population of tens or hundreds of thousands of patients and hundreds of different possible features that may each exert a different influence on the outcome at different time points. These are computationally intensive analyses to run, and the models created from these data are virtually uninterpretable in a conventional fashion, hence the black box. Outside of medicine, these are the sorts of approaches being used by social media titans to do targeted advertising or by fraud detection software, improving the detection of abnormal behavior on your credit card. Ryan, I'm, I'm a little upset that you didn't say millions of patients as well. But, you know, you talk about targeted advertising and trying to identify fraud. I mean, I've seen some targeting advertisement come up in my feed, and it doesn't seem that targeted. I mean, it's not all about Batman. And then I've been called about some abnormal credit card purchases when, you know what, that's not outside the norm of my credit card purchasing. So I'm not impressed that machine learning using big data is working really well. Now, granted, you know, I am a skeptic, and that is just an N of one, an anecdote, so it could be hypothesis generating, but how can I be confident as a physician about those advocating for using machine learning or big data? How can it get it, quote unquote, right when it comes to much more complex things than my purchasing habits of Batman paraphernalia to apply to things like healthcare? Well, that, that is the million, or if you're throwing money around in the United States, the billion-dollar question. The same critical questions apply to evaluating machine learning as to any other predictive model. But, as I've alluded to, sometimes the transparency is not as great as traditional techniques. Generalizability and data quality tend to be the big issues to consider, just like in traditional medical data sets. The types of patients that go into any big data set will ultimately define what you get out. And if you're doing things like using machine learning for visual analysis of skin lesions, you can very obviously see you'll run into severe limitations for wider use if your training data includes patients only with light-colored skin. A prediction algorithm looking at healthcare processes, such as likelihood for admission, may depend on which data points are available for analysis at different time points during an emergency department visit, or an algorithm predicting 30-day readmission for heart failure may depend on the structure of their post-discharge care or the social determinants of health present in their training population. Any sets of inputs can be tied to a specific output, but translating one model to another setting is incredibly difficult. Well, you brought up money, so I'm going to bring up the at what cost I mean, well-trained and experienced emergency physicians, well, invaluable. And I couldn't put a price on a well-trained, experienced emergency physician, but they can walk into a room and within 30 seconds often risk stratify the chest pain for query ACS or the chest pain for query PE or looking at septic patients and figuring out how sick they are and predict accurately if this person really needs to be admitted. It's called clinical gestalt. While the heuristics is not perfect, and that would be a nirvana fallacy, is big data machine learning going to do a better job, and at what cost? These are definitely more important questions to ask when evaluating the application of machine learning models in healthcare. 
An algorithm can only predict what it can see, which is the data present in the electronic health record. In the emergency department, particularly early in the initial evaluation of a patient, a clinician can see a lot more than the electronic health record. And in many aspects, the electronic health record is dependent upon what the clinician has seen and documented in order to make its predictions. There are definitely instances where the models simply won't be able to make an impact, and others where it might. Sepsis, as you mentioned, is one of the big targets for these algorithms, both because of the seriousness of the diagnosis and the quality measures and the financial incentives. While these models may not have immediate access to all the data points they need, the power of these models is they can use far more data points as inputs to make these predictions than the traditional approaches, and they can run in the background while clinicians are unavoidably distracted by other tasks. The downside of these models is they simply sometimes aren't clinically sensible, and without experts supervising and reviewing how the models are generated, they can end up making their predictions off odd idiosyncrasies like early sepsis models that made predictions in part based on data points, including patients for whom clinicians had ordered broad-spectrum antibiotics. Those patients, they suddenly predict, have sepsis perhaps. (laughs) The other big issue, as you previously alluded, is how do these compare with clinical judgment? Most clinical decision instruments aren't compared directly against clinical judgment to start with, and these are no different. A great-looking area under the curve is a lot different than a comparison to a clinician deciding to act or not to act. And even that is yet another big jump from integrating such a predictive tool into the electronic workflow of emergency physicians under time pressure. Well, this is not an area that I've really done a deep dive into, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on as an expert in this area to advise us. What do you think the big, see how I use big again? The big takeaway from big data and machine learning should be for the listeners. Well, with you, isn't it always be skeptical? It is. (laughs) There's a lot of data floating around, and it's astoundingly straightforward to plug data into a software package, define outcomes, and run it through the grinder for a predictive model. But someone's patented sepsis alert, generated on data from a facility with totally different information and workflow, is almost guaranteed to have different performance for you, whether because the patients are different, the information flow into the model is different, or whether your workflow is different. Well, this is very similar to when you do a derivation set on a clinical decision instrument, and then that's validated in the same center where it was developed, and then it gets released into the wild, and they try to validate it out in the wild, and it never seems to perform as well as the internal area that it actually was derived and validated in. So I I see similarities there where if you take one huge big data set from one large organization but apply it externally to some other organization, you may not get the same results you were expecting. But I do love the takeaway of being skeptical. Yeah, I mean, it's just like taking one medicine in one person with their own physiology and taking that medicine to a different person with entirely different physiology, eating entirely different things, doing entirely different things during the course of their day. Is that medicine going to work the same? We know it clearly doesn't always. It needs to be validated outside the initial population. Oh, that's great. So we went from super big data and stuff like that all the way down to the N of one because we want to know what we're doing is going to work or have benefit in that one individual because we tend to treat people one at a time unless, of course, you're in public health. For those interested in learning more, can you direct them to other readings? Well, there's, there's obviously more than a few articles out there, both of the review type and the example implementation type. 
Um, a couple of reviews include a very high-level overview, one entitled Understanding and Interpreting Artificial Intelligence, Machine Learning, and Deep Learning in Emergency Medicine, which is a free article in the Emergency Medicine Journal. There's a much deeper dive into the nuts and bolts in a slightly more obscure journal, but still a great piece, and that's called Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning in Emergency Medicine, a narrative review, and that's in the Avert Journal of Acute Medicine and Surgery. And then, of course, the, within Annals of Emergency Medicine and uh, Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, there's several articles out there demonstrating the implementation and derivation of machine learning models to predict either admission or sepsis or a variety of other topics. Well, we'll put links in the show notes to these publications. Anything else you'd like to say before we end the November Time to Talk a Little Nerdy episode? Only that it's been fantastic to have a chance to briefly introduce these topics, which, despite seeming abstract and far removed from the reality of emergency medicine, will almost certainly be an increasing part of clinical practice, and what you see right now is clearly just the beginning. Well, Ryan, I have one more question, and this is based on my anxiety. Do I have to worry that Skynet is going to become self-aware and then wipe us all out because of this machine learning and big data? Well, if it does, the Skynet in the emergency department is just going to be giving ceftriaxone and 30 cc's per kilogram of fluid to every single patient. Oh, yes, it will be a dystopic future. All right. Well, next month, Swami and I will be back and discussing post-publication retraction. Until then, stay nerdy, everyone. Attention, attention. You have officially reached the end of the November EMA episode. And so it was said, and so within the next couple of days, it shall be written as we complete our notes. And send them <laughs> yes, and then we shall be done and we shall move on to, to the December episode very shortly. Very shortly. Yes, indeed. So uh, happy, uh, I guess, Friendsgiving, Thanksgiving. Friendsgiving Hope you guys are enjoying your fall. Uh, we are... We're actually about to go to the MRAP annual retreat in a couple of days, yep. which is an awesome thing hosted by the Herbert family, Mel mm -hmm. and Mary both, which is really cool because we get to hang out with the people sort of who actually make this thing sound good. Yes. The producers and the editors and the effects people. Yeah. And it's just an awesome time for us to get to know all these really cool people. So I'm looking forward to those couple of days in Santa yeah, you Barbara. Like, you like throwing it in the face of everybody that you're like, hey, we're about to do fun stuff. You're driving into your shift. Ha ha. Nobody listens to this <laughs> outro. What do you, this is just for us. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I actually have no idea if anybody, if you listen to this, <laughs> just send me a, no, I'm going to say code word. Just yeah. send every time. They'll you send you one dollar. <laughs> If you send the code word, what is it? What, what, what you you have to send it directly into the 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 suggestion box, and you have to say the code word. Yeah, say hashtag outro. hashtag outro rocks, and then <laughs> don't change a thing. You get one. It's like a shoot buck. Keep <laughs> seeing the office. We could go. We could up this. We could give them one of those challenge coins because I agree with you. It's probably nobody listening at all. Hashtag outro rocks. Hashtag see you in December. Hashtag stay classy. Stay classy. <laughs>